Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Right, looks like we are live. Welcome everybody to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie and I am your host and moderator for tonight's much anticipated debate between two very experienced debaters, Kelly Powers and CJ Cox. It is a privilege to have both these debaters with me tonight to debate the specific question, does the Bible teach regeneration precedes faith? Always an interesting topic, an important one. One could say it is the great total depravity debate. And so CJ and Kelly, why don't we uh, get some brief introductions from the both of you. Let's break the ice a little bit, get to know you guys a bit before the showdown begins on total depravity. CJ, why don't we start with you, brother? Been a little while since you've been here, but it's definitely not your first rodeo. You've been here uh, multiple times before on multiple different topics. So it's always a pleasure. A little bit about yourself and a little bit about the Synagogue YouTube channel. Absolutely. And thank you. So for those who do not know, uh, my name is CJ Cox. And as he said, I run the YouTube channel, The Synagogue. Um, I am a reformed Protestant who wears the term fundamentalist on my sleeve. I think that that is something that we should all strive to call ourselves. We shouldn't let the extremists take control of that word because a fundamentalist is one who adheres to the fundamentals of the faith. In other words, it's a Christian. Um, so I think that it's important that we reclaim that term. And that is a big portion of what my channel is about. Uh, we do a lot of open rooms on my channel. We discuss a lot of philosophy, uh, discuss a lot of history, do of course, different forms of apologetics. And obviously we do these from a reformed background. Uh, I am a Calvinist. I'm not a Presbyterian, so I guess I'm not classically reformed, but nevertheless, I do adhere to the, uh, five points of tulip. And I do believe that they are thoroughly biblical. So if you guys want to hear uh, general Christian apologetics or even more specifically, sometimes things that pertain to a reformed understanding, certainly do consider checking it out. I do have an after show that we'll be doing tonight. Of course, Donnie and Kelly, you both are invited and anybody else in the audience as well. It will be an open mic and on this particular topic. But anyways, that's a little bit about me. And uh, thank you for the floor there. Well, I appreciate it, CJ. Again, I appreciate you uh, being here. Your link is linked in the description box for people to uh, check out. And I can also post the link to your uh, after show in the audience for people to see as well. Okay. Kelly Powers from Berean Perspective Apologetics. It's great to have you back as well, brother. Um, not your first rodeo. You've been here many times before on different topics as well dispensationalism, the nature of God, Trinity versus oneness. You've had at least one debate uh, on this topic before as well with Turretin fans. So it is a privilege to have you back. And Kelly, a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your ministry. Go ahead. 
Well, thanks. It's good to be back. I think the last one I had was uh, David, or no, John Barton. John Barton. That was uh, David Preston. I think I'll, I'll be as humble as David Preston. I think this is my 10th time being here, and I've lost all nine previous ones. So um, <laughs> it's, I'm looking forward to my 10th one in a row. I'm so excited about this. It's exciting. So, um, no, you know, me and CJ here, I, I would consider him very much a brother. We've talked before. I've been on his channel a couple of times, just briefly here and there. I know he's checked out my channel. So this is, in my opinion, this is an in-house debate, right? Like this is a soteriology. We're both examining. We both believe in Jesus. We both believe in faith alone. Um, I get accused. So it's kind of a joke. I get accused of being a Calvinist all the time. We mean, even CJ, we're just talking about, he thought for a long time I was a Calvinist and didn't even know any better. And then some other guys will think I'm an Arminian. And because certain things that I'll say about Lordship salvation or things like that. And they think, Oh, you know, you're a crazy guy. And so I'm kind of this crazy guy where I'm kind of a little bit of both. And, uh, so I confuse everybody really well. Um, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since the age of six, born again in 1977. Uh, got involved with uh, ministry and being discipled and mentored in the early 1990s. Uh, been an apologetic since the 1990s. I've got a channel called, obviously, The Brilliant Perspective, Apologetics. Uh, it's a great channel. I think uh, I have kind of, I know um, CJ has people come on his channel at times too. It's normally mostly audio, but People can come on his channel and have conversations. That's what I do on my channel a lot. So I got a lot of oneness, a lot of Catholics. Surprisingly, I've had quite a few Jehovah Witnesses come on my channel. That's supposed to be a no-no, but yet they keep doing it. And then uh, Mormons come on and other people. And so it's it's just about, for me, there's twofold. I want to help Christians grow in their, their walk with the Lord. And then second, uh, to help non-Christians come to Christ. And so that's kind of my twofold purpose of why I do what I do. Kelly, I appreciate the introduction. I've also got your channel link linked in the description box. So to anybody in the audience, if you like what you're seeing from tonight's guests, Kelly Powers and CJ Cox, please do check the description box where you can find their relevant links. And as you put it, Kelly, we've got a solid but important in-house debate tonight. Again, to anybody just joining us, the question we will be engaging. Does the Bible teach regeneration precedes faith? Both CJ and Kelly, they are experienced debaters as uh, as we've covered here. And so it'll definitely be a debate to remember. It'll be a scholarly one, that's for sure. And so let me go over the format then. We are having a formal debate, starting with 15-minute opening statements. Was CJ Cox. Sorry, we, we switched it to 20. We'll switch it to 20. Okay, so we'll have we'll have 20 minute opening statements. And that way we're going to keep this comprehensive as it is a comprehensive topic. So followed by 10 minute rebuttals. Is that right, gentlemen? 10 minute yeah. rebuttals and then a 50 minute discussion. And so everybody's favorite part of a debate, 50 minutes, lots of time for the debaters to ask each other questions. It will be broken up into two 25 minute periods where debater A cross-examines debater B for 25 minutes, and then debater B cross-examines debater A for 25 minutes. Then we'll have a five-minute concluding statement where the debaters can wrap up their thoughts and points for the night. And then this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. We are going to have a roughly 25-minute audience Q&A. And so please make sure you're tagging me with your questions. Tag me at either Standing for Truth 
or at Donnie, uh, whatever the best way would be that I don't miss your question. So with that, CJ, we are going to hand it over to you. And I'll give you gentlemen, since it's a 20-minute warning, I'll give you guys a five-minute warning and then a one-minute warning. And that way you'll know to start wrapping things up. And so whenever you're ready, CJ, the floor is yours. If you need me to share a screen, let me know as well. All righty. Thank you very much. <clears throat> and I'll just go ahead and jump right into it. So Shalom Saints and blessings to you all in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to start off, of course, by thanking Donnie for hosting this debate and Mr. Powers for participating in the debate with me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and I'd also like to thank the audience for their participation in listening to our dialogue tonight. And of course, our Lord and Savior for his grace and allowing us to speak about this topic here this evening. Uh, the topic before us is total depravity, or more specifically, does the Bible teach that regeneration precedes faith? And I will be taking the affirmative in this conversation, arguing that the doctrine of total depravity is both thoroughly biblical and correct, but tomato, tomato, am I right? Uh, without further ado, I'd like to jump right into the evidence, and we'll start by clarifying what total depravity is and what it is not, which is very important for these debates because it is something that is off straw man. I don't suspect that Mr. Powers will be doing this, but I do suspect many in the audience do need this clarification. Total depravity is the belief that, as a result of the fall of man, seen in Genesis chapter 3, Human beings are, by fallen nature, enslaved to the service of sin to such an extent that a man cannot totally refrain from evil, nor can he choose by his own will to follow the Lord, nor can he choose by his own will to accept the gospel gift of salvation, nor can he be ultimately pleasing in God's sight. None of this can be done by the man, save for by the efficacious, that is to say, irresistible, or prevenient, that is to say, enabling or preparatory, grace of God being imparted unto them. Hence the question, does regeneration precede faith? Total depravity is not the oft put forward straw man that human beings are completely incapable of doing any good apart from regeneration. It is not the absurd idea that we are utterly depraved. Very few, if any men, have ever been so, have ever been, uh, supportive of the idea that we are utterly or absolutely depraved, and indeed very few men have ever been utterly or absolutely depraved to such an extent that they were completely incapable of doing any good. Even Hitler seems to feel a fondness for dogs, and even Jeffrey Dahmer seemed to love his own father. Even Joe Biden seems to care for his own son. Only kidding. Uh, I would venture to say that there are none who believe we are as bad as we could ever possibly be, and to quote Christianity.com to back me up here, Quote, total depravity does not teach that we are all as bad as we could possibly be in a practical sense. Total depravity simply means that every part of our being is corrupted by sin, and specifically that our will, our human will, is bent in and of itself so that we will not seek God, we will not choose God in and of ourselves. We need God's, uh, excuse me, we need God's effectual grace, his power working to change our hearts and to change our minds so that we do choose him, end quote. So, if there are any in the audi audience who wish to attack the idea that man is incapable of doing any modicum of good, you may save your breath for walking up a hill. Nobody actually believes that, like at all, as in ever. 
Man is enslaved to sin. Man is unable to refrain from evil. Man's heart is desperately wicked, and the thoughts of his heart are evil continually. But he is not incapable of ever doing any kind of good deed whatsoever. Capiche? So, with that said, we've looked into what total depravity is, and we've explored what total depravity is not. Now I'd like to examine what the scriptures have to say about this issue, and I will start with Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, which reads, quote, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. End quote. This is repeated in the same book, chapter 8, verse 21, which reads, quote, And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done, end quote, that is to say, with a flood. The message is clear here, is it not? The intentions of man's heart are evil every day, every hour, all the time, from womb to tomb, plain as day. To such an extent that God destroyed the whole of the human race and all the animals with them, save for Noah and his kin, and those animals which were with them on the ark. And he will do so again, I might add, albeit not by the raging waters of a flood. See the aforementioned promise in Genesis 8, 21. Jeremiah 17, 9 repeats the same with slightly different verbiage as it does so, saying, quote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? End quote. The Psalms say in Psalm 58 and verse number three, quote, the wicked are estranged from the womb and they go astray from birth, speaking lies, end quote. <clears throat> Again, from these, we get a clear teaching, unambiguous in its meaning. Man is evil and estranged from God from the very beginning of his life. His heart is the most deceitful thing in all creation, such that even he cannot fathom the, the thalassoidic depths of its depravity. What could possibly be clearer? Well, Romans 3 says, hold my beer. In verse 10, verses 10, excuse me, through 23, we see that Paul is absolutely one who taught the doctrine of total depravity, not simply in the sense that we are enslaved to sin as we just laid out and could be laid out ad infinitum ad nauseum, but in the sense that really gets to the crux of our agreement or our engagement rather. That is that man cannot seek after God by his own will. Quote, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, excuse me. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, end quote. Excuse me, not end quote. I have to continue here. My apologies. I misread my own uh, writing here. So continuing with the quote, now we know that whatever the law says, or whenever the law says, excuse me, sorry, messing up here completely. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. 
for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, end quote, for real this time. Allow me to make up a couple points of emphasis while we are here. Paul, who is an apostle and prophet of our Lord, in other words, not Martin Luther, a reformer, not Charles Spurgeon, a very wise teacher in the modern day, not Ignatius of Antioch, a church father. He is an apostle and prophet of our Lord under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing that which is theonustos, that is to say, God-breathed, God-inspired. And he says to us, there is none, as in Nile, nil, zilch, nada, do not pass go, who does good. And he reemphasizes, no, not one. He repeats, there is none, that is to say, zero, who understands. There is none, as in one minus one, who seeks after God. This is, simply put, the death knell to the unreformed position. No one, not one single solitary person who ever was, does good or seeks after God. And emphasis on that last part, seeks after God. Nobody seeks after God. Plain and simple. But my friends, the fat lady is in a singing mood this evening because we're not going to stop there. In the same book, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, we read, Quote, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice that those who have no condemnation are those who are in Christ Jesus, which is the same as those who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. In other words, those who walk according to the flesh are the unsaved, those whom there is condemnation upon, who are not in Christ Jesus. Continuing back to the verse. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be uh, spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice the carnal man is an enemy of God and is not subject to the righteous law of God. In not subject in the sense that he is not following, not, not subject in the sense that he is not obligated to fulfill that. In fact, considering salvation by faith through grace alone, he's the only person who is obligated to fulfill it perfectly. We, of course, have the imputed righteousness of Christ, and thus our penalty is relieved, as spoken in this same uh, passage. He cannot be and cannot please God at all, period. Now ask yourself, is faith pleasing to God? Is it subject to his law? You already know the answers to these questions, but I'll box a horse if I must. Of course, faith is pleasing to our Lord. Of course, faith is the crux of our Lord's law. If those in the flesh cannot please God and, it, and they are in enmity with him, how can those in the flesh have saving faith? It makes absolutely no sense. It's like saying a rose can't possibly be yellow and then walking up with a yellow flower and saying, this is a rose. It's completely illogical to say we cannot possibly please God if we are in the flesh. 
right after we just said those who are in the spirit are Christians and those who are in the flesh are the non-Christians, the non-saved, and then turn around and say, but they can have saving faith, the thing that is the most pleasing to God out of anything. Look, friends, if I don't cheat on my wife, or if I never touch any drugs, or if I never touch any pornography, or if I never blaspheme his name, all of those things combined are not as pleasing to God as my having saving faith in him. How can we say that the, those who are in the flesh cannot possibly please God, but say they can do the thing which is most pleasing to God? How can we say they are at enmity with God, but then do the thing, say that they can do the thing which is most in friendship with God? How can we say that they are uh, not subject to the law, as in the law of God that is portrayed here in Romans 8, but then turn around and say they can actually do the thing which is most in line with God's law? It simply does not make any sense. But we continue. We are not yet done here. There are plenty more passages for us to read. I'd like to now turn your guys' attention to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me make sure I actually have it up here. Looks like I don't. Just one second. And Ephesians chapter 2 says thus, starting here at verse number 1, actually. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Dead, lifeless, in other words. Useless, in other words. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also ye all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Notice, by nature, children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved. I'm going to repeat that. Even when we were dead in sins, we're not doing anything. We are lifeless. We are useless. We are dead in our trespasses. But Paul says, even when we were in this state, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Notice here, again, he talks about how we are by nature children of wrath before we were saved. He talks about how we were dead in our sins. He talks about how while we were dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, children of wrath by nature, he who is rich in mercy was the one who reached down to us and quickened us together with Christ why is this the way it must be? Because by grace are we saved. Notice it's by grace through faith. Faith is the mechanism by which you receive the grace, but the grace is actually the thing which does the saving. Moving on here again to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Five minutes. 
Thank you, brother. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Notice that he is going out of his way to say, this is not my ideas. Not that any of us would believe that, but just to hit the nail on the head. This is not my ideas. I didn't come up with this. This isn't my opinion. I didn't even get this from the disciples. No, I got this directly from Jesus Christ himself, Paul says. Continue. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, repeating the same thing. But we speak the wisdom of God, but we speak, excuse me, the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of the world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But that it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us by God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things which spir with spiritual. Now all of that context leads us up to this very important point. But the natural man, not us, the not Christian, not me, not Kelly, not Donnie, not you in the audience, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness under him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Again, we emphasize some points. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. And by my count, I think we are at six nails in the coffin here. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. He's not even capable of knowing these things. The, the natural man is just as capable of understanding the spiritual things as I am of understanding what it's like to be on the planet Pluto. For those who may not know, no human being has been on the planet Pluto, much less myself. The natural man uh, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. Again, I say period, end of story. He's not capable. It is only those who have been, uh, who have had these things revealed to them by the Holy Spirit who are capable of discerning these things. Now ask yourself this, is salvation a spiritual thing or a natural thing? Of course, you know the answer to this question. But I'm, I put on my best Muhammad Ali impersonation here and once again jump into the ring with the horse. Obviously, salvation is a spiritual thing. But we're still not actually done here. What about John chapter 3? This is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice this. Unless one is born again, that is to say, regenerate. One minute. Thank you, brother. 
He cannot see. He cannot even see. He cannot even perceive the things of the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, born again, I every Christian I have ever met says born again, regenerate, saved. These are interchangeable terms. And Jesus, our Lord, says that you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again, unless you are regenerate. Ladies and gentlemen, this coffin is about to lose its structural integrity. We keep putting nails in it. I could continue on with other passages such as John chapter 6, where he's, uh, where Jesus says quite plainly, nobody can come to him unless the Father draw them. We could go to uh, the Psalms in chapter 51, where David says quite plainly that we are brought forth in iniquity and in sin do our mothers conceive us. We could go to Isaiah 64 or Romans chapter 7 or Romans chapter 10 seconds. So many other places, but my time is fleeting. And so I'll simply leave you with this. The scripture is not ambiguous on this issue. It is simply our own emotion that leaves it to sound ambiguous on this issue. And with that, I'll yield the rest of my time. And I appreciate you for giving me the 20 minutes. Wow, that's CJ, I appreciate the 20 minute opening statement. Yes, 20 minutes really does fly by. And uh, I can already tell there's going to be a lot of great points for us to discuss throughout this debate. In the chat, somebody asked, is this live? This is live. And so please, if you have questions for the debaters, I am all caught up with questions. Just make sure you're tagging me and I'll do my best to save them. Okay, Kelly Powers, we are now going to hand it over to you for your 20-minute opening statement. Whenever you're ready, you just let me know and I'll start your timer. Right, so go ahead and unmute me. Yeah, you're unmuted. All right, you can put me on the screen then I'll tell you to put the other one on full screen in a second. Okay. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it, my man. <laughs> That's right. Go ahead, brother. All right. I just started my clock. Thank you. Hey, thank you, CJ, for your opening. Appreciate that. You shared a lot of stuff that I was expecting already. And I mean, there's kind of verses that we will be going back and forth. I already kind of know that. So thank you very much. And again, as I shared earlier, this is an in-house debate for us as Christians. Now, I'm not going to really get too much into what does regeneration mean for our Calvinists, because CJ has already explained essentially that one, according to Reformed theology and official teachings, that this means that one would be become made alive. Their eyes would be open, their hearts would be open, they'll be regenerated, they'll be quickened, they'll be born again, they'll become made alive, a new creation, and then therefore they then have the faith to trust in Jesus Christ. Does the Bible actually teach that? That's what I want to present. This is the other side of the coin. Go ahead and put my stuff on the screen, please. All right, you can put that full screen. All right, so is man totally unable to believe in Jesus Christ without first being generated? Yes, there are scriptures that would seem to indicate that as it has been presented so far. I'm going to try and give some my own thoughts here, and then once we get into the cross-examination, I'm sure we'll iron this out a little bit more. Now, what does regeneration mean? Well, in Reformed theology, has been already stated, essentially means to be made alive, to be quickened, to be given spiritual life, to essentially to become born again. What does the Bible teach in regeneration? What did Jesus teach to unregenerate people on how to receive eternal life? What did Peter teach to unregenerate people about the good news of Jesus Christ? What did Paul teach to unregenerate people about how to be saved? What is the gospel? And in conclusion, what does the Bible teach about faith? 
So regeneration, there's two places in the scriptures that are demonstrate the word regeneration in the New Testament. First one is in Matthew 19, verses 27 and 28, where it states, And Peter said to him, meaning Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that you have followed me, and in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here we see how the word regeneration is pointing to something of a future restoration in the type of heavenly realm that would be coming later. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, it states, When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. I want to contend to you this evening, this is the word here for regeneration. It has the meaning of new birth, and this is what we both would agree here. The question will arise here is, does one need to be regenerated or to have new birth in order to actually be able to believe and trust in Jesus Christ prior? Now, it may come as a shock to some of my Reformed friends out there, but prior to the work of the cross and the resurrection, no one was ever regenerated or born again or had new life or was made afresh. Let me share with you a few scriptures here. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, we read the following that Jesus is speaking here. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now look at what John the apostle writes here. But this he spoke of the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive were to receive that's future tense for the spirit was not yet given because jesus was not yet glorified now in john 14 john 15 and john 16 we learn the most about the holy spirit and who he is and what he's going to be coming and remember jesus said unless i go away the holy spirit will not come to you well here we see in john 14 verse 16 and 17 jesus says i will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, there's two words here that need to be emphasized. The word abides with you, that word with, is the Greek word para. It means that the Holy Spirit was alongside them, alongside them, giving them influence and direction, but will be in you future tense, which goes directly back to John chapter 7 meaning the indwelling, the born-again experience. Now, in John chapter 20, just after Jesus has been resurrected, and he appears to his disciples, Thomas wasn't there yet, this is the others, and he said to them, breathed on them, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This would be the first indication where people actually received the Holy Spirit. I submit to you, prior to the work of the cross and the resurrection, no one was ever made alive, regenerated in what we understand the New Testament understanding, made alive or quickened or regenerated. The scriptures teach this did not take place until after Jesus was glorified. Now, in John chapter 1, the prologue. In the prologue of John chapter 1, we see a few things here. Jesus enlightens every man. Jesus came to his own, but they rejected him. Jesus gave the power to become children of God to those who received him. Becoming a child of God or being regenerate happens after one receives Jesus, not before, thus showing that faith precedes regeneration. Look in John 1 with me. 
There was the true light, meaning Jesus, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He, meaning Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those his own did not receive him. Talking about the Jewish people in general. But look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become. Notice there, now John is writing post-resurrection of Christ, after Jesus has left. He's now given us the goods from John's perspective. He gave us the right to become children of God, those who believe in his name. Now watch this. Who were born, and this is talking about the supernatural birth, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So this born-again experience, this becoming a child of God, that is truly the supernatural work of God. But how does one get there? How does one become? Here, John notes, he gave the right to become. Why? To those who received him and believed in his name, and then they became something they were not, i.e., they then became born again, regenerated. That's what we see from the Apostle John. Now, look what we see from Jesus speaking to the Nicodemus, the Samaritans, and religious Jews in John chapter 3, 4, and 5. Remember the story of the most familiar passage probably in the whole Bible, John 3, 16. But many people forget John 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might, might be saved through him. Conditional. He who believes him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Now notice this here, back to verse 14. Prior to this, in John 3, yes, Jesus was talking about being born again. Those who, uh, you, you have to be born again to see. Yes, you have to be born again to enter. Nicodemus was not getting it. Jesus in fact goes on to say, are you not the teacher of Israel and you do not understand the things that I'm telling you? But notice what happens. Then Jesus gives Nicodemus, a Pharisee, something that he could understand. He points Moses to Nicodemus that takes place back in Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, the people were disobedient to the Lord and Moses, and the Lord sent fiery servants among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Verse 7. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents. Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, This is what the Lord said. Make a fiery serpent. Set it on the standard. It shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. So Moses made the bronze serpent, set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked... When he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. This goes back right there. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man live it. Jesus used a very similar comparison. If you want to have eternal life, you must believe. You want to live, you must look. This points Nicodemus to understanding what the gospel message that would be taking place later, the Son of Man, that they would have known, the Pharisees and religious people would have known that the Messiah was to be given his life as a suffering sacrifice, Isaiah 53. Now look at this here. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. Remember the Samaritan woman? She's confused why Jesus is a Jew asking her for water. He goes on to say, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of living, 
a well of water springing up to eternal life. This goes back directly to John 7. The woman said to him, through this conversation, Jesus reveals she's had five husbands. The one that she has now is not her husband. She says, ooh, you must be a prophet, right? And the story goes on. And then the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Notice what Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Here, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ. Now, in verse 28, the woman left her water pot, went to the city and said to these men, come and see a man who told me all things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and weren't coming to him. So now this woman had this interaction with Jesus. She goes back to where she's from, tells other Samaritans about it. They get excited. They now want to talk to Jesus. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. What? They believed in him? Wait a minute. How's that possible? Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him. He stayed with them for two days. Many more believed because of his word. They were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you've said, we believe, but we've heard with ourselves, no, this is the one, indeed, the Savior of the world. In John chapter 5, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus for killed on the Sabbath. He's sharing who he is back and forth. He said, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He says in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is in these that testify about me. You are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He's given them the goods and they're not wanting to listen. Why? He says in verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. For if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? As if Jesus is like, hey, I'm giving you the goods here. You got to believe. Now, I want to get to Thomas. Thomas is probably my favorite part of this illustration. I want to be talking about faith preceding regeneration. Remember Thomas, we always call him Doubting Thomas. He wasn't there with the others and Jesus appeared to him. Called Didymus, he was not there when Jesus came. The other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. And he said to him, unless I am regenerated, I cannot believe. Whoa! That's just me being a little silly. Don't have a heart attack out there, people. Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, I will and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. After eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here, put your finger, see my hands, reach here, your hand, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. He gave Thomas what he needed. Just like many examples we see in the scriptures, Jesus reaches the people where they're at. What do we see his response? Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. And us as born again Christians know he affirms the deity of Jesus Christ right here. Now, notice what Jesus says, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. So this is, a, this is for us today. For us today who believe in Jesus, we're even more blessed. We haven't seen him, but yet we believe. Look at verse 31, the end of John. I open with John, I conclude with John here. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John wrote what he wrote, so you would believe that he's the Christ. He's not writing to all Christians. He's writing for people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life 
in his name. Now we're going to go quickly here with Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. Notice here in Acts chapter 10, there's a guy named Cornelius. All my Reformed friends out there, listen carefully. Cornelius was not regenerated. Cornelius was an unregenerate Gentile. There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion who was called to the Italian cohort, a devout man, and feared God with all his household, gave many alms to Jewish people, and prayed to God continually. How is that possible if he's supposed to be an unregenerate guy, according to what we hear from our Calvinist friends? Peter says, open his mouth, says, I know that God shows no partiality. Everyone who fears him is welcome to him. And he goes on to give them the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. He ordered them to preach to the people. Solomon testified, this is the one who's been appointed by God, a judge, of living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. We see in Acts 15, Peter defending the Gentiles, saved by faith as Paul did. And he says here, by my mouth, that the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and what? Believe. God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He gave them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Look at Acts 17 with me. Acts 17, 1 through 4. This is Paul. Paul is his regular custom, going to uh, the Jews and, and, and reasoning with the Sabbath in the synagogues. It says here, he reasoned with for the scriptures, for three Sabbaths, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul. Paul was being a good apologist. Paul was being a good apologist, explaining and giving evidence that Jesus was a Christ, and he was giving it to him in the scriptures, and some of them believed and were persuaded. In Acts 17, verse 28 through 31, we see again, where he's reaching the people of the unknown God. He's reaching them where they're at, being a good apologist, meeting them where they're at, like 1 Corinthians chapter 19, where he says, I do all things about people that I might win some to Christ. Look at this here. He's giving them the goods about how to know God. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God who is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Verse 30, all people everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed the day when he would judge the world and righteous through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Others said there was people who were snickering at him and not believing, but others said, We shall hear you again. Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. We see the importance of giving apologetics, good reasoning, sharing things from scriptures, and reaching people where they're at and praying for people to come to faith. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel. The gospel is death, burial, and resurrection. We read that throughout the book of Acts in 1 Corinthians 15. For it is. What is? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. For what? To who? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous man shall live by faith. 
for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. This is what makes a person born again, the power of the gospel. What, what, what do we do? We believe, as John 1.12 says, and then we become a child of God. We believe the gospel. We perceive the gospel. We then become a child of God. As I wrap up here, getting close, 1 Peter chapter 1 states, just like Jesus speaking to Thomas, more blessed are those who don't see me yet believe. He says here, this you greatly rejoice. Even now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As I conclude with one minute to go here, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, he says, we beg you, be reconciled to God. We beg you, we implore you, we beseech you, be reconciled to God. Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal. That word appeal has the word of invitation through us. We beg you, we implore you, we plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And to that I say amen and amen. Thank you. Okay, Kelly, thank you very much for that roughly 20-minute opening statement. Kelly and CJ, great work, great job on your opening statements. As I like to say, I always appreciate the time put in by our guests and debaters who show up on this channel. So lots of points for us to uh, discuss. CJ, we are now moving into the 10-minute rebuttal portion of the debate. And so let me restart the timer. Whenever you're ready, CJ, the floor is yours. All righty. Thank you very much. Um, so first off, I do want to say, because I haven't said it yet, I do agree with uh, Mr. Powers that this is a in-house debate. Um, obviously, you don't have to be a Calvinist in order to be saved. Otherwise, the Bible would just say that, and it doesn't. So I certainly do want to reiterate that. And I also want to say I appreciate that this is thus far a conversation of one using scripture versus one using scripture, because very often I have had debates which are not that, not always, of course, but nevertheless, I just want to say I appreciate those things. Now, let's go ahead and jump right into the rebuttal. I, of course, have limited time. I want to start with John chapter 1, which was one of the things that was quoted here. And you guys, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so, of course, it says, see, notice they received him, and then to them he gave them power to become the sons of God. So doesn't that seem to indicate that they were regenerated after the fact? Not so. Let me give a couple of reasons why. Number one, verse number 13 says, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
In other words, it seems like, excuse me, it seems like these who were uh, receiving him, these who were becoming the sons of God, are not born by their own will, by their own volition, by their own faith, by their flesh or anything of those na- of that nature, but rather by the will of God himself, right? In other words, verse 13 seems to clarify for verse number 12 and let us know that, in fact, this is not anything that comes into conflict with the doctrine of total depravity. Furthermore, we all know that there is uh, a that there are two different ways in which one can speak the same sentence, right? You can say something in a sort of uh, in a manner which is describing like, all right, if you do X, then Y. But you can also say all who do X are Y, right? And I think this is very clearly the latter. All who do X, namely all who received him, are Y, namely are those who he gave the power to become the sons of God. Not that those who are receiving him are because of the receiving him becoming uh, the, the sons of God. I think that it's that's a little bit of a reverse order. And I think obviously we'll be able to have a good conversation on that in and of itself. But nevertheless, there are two different manners in which a man can speak on these uh, using the same words. And here I think that the form or excuse me, the latter is what's being used. Those who are X are Y, not those who are X become Y or something along those lines, right? I'm going to speed race through this, so I hope that I don't uh, say anything poorly as I continue to go on. John chapter 3. Now, notice John chapter 3, verse 3. It already said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that is something we have to keep in the back of our mind here. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But nevertheless, in that same chapter, we do read... Uh, which was read for us. Uh, Let's see, where is it here? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have uh, everlasting life. First place I want to pause here. Uh, While I do appreciate uh, why my opponents, not just Mr. Powers here, but anybody else who would be against the reform position here, uh, would want to emphasize the word belief, I just have to say it's not... Uh, anything that's going to to score any points in this particular regard, because the Calvinist believes that uh, there is nobody in the reform on the reform side who believes that one can not believe and therefore be saved. Right? I'm going to get to this in a moment, but this is actually something that has gone all the way back to even pre-Christian philosophers like Socrates and Aristotle and so on, back when they argued about ideas of predestination. And it's actually a reiteration of what we call the idle argument. I'll get to that in a moment, but just one of for now. Suffice it to say, uh, we also believe that you must believe in order to be saved, right? So emphasizing the word believe here doesn't really do anything to clarify the issue. Continuing forward, though, so for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be uh, saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Notice this. He that believeth not is condemned already. At that time that Jesus is speaking, they're already condemned. Why is that the case? Well, because Jesus came for his own. Jesus came for his sheep. Now, obviously, I believe that both of us here in this conversation are that, even though we disagree on why that's the case, on whether or not God has effectually chosen us before the foundation of the world. But nevertheless, suffice it to say, Jesus here is saying that those who believe not on him, they're condemned already at the time that he's sitting there talking with Nicodemus, even though he hasn't gone to the cross yet, right? So that is certainly an important point for us to 
uh, emphasize here. Also, with this word might, that the world through him might be saved, it is important for us to recognize that there is broad semantic range in words. Might can be the improper of may. It can also mean a force or power of any kind, whether a body or mind, energy or intensity or purpose, feeling or action, means or resources, to affect an object. Strength, force, power, ability, and capacity are given as synonyms. And I read that from BibleHub.com. So just because we see this quite often, right? So for example, in, in Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie. It's not using the word should there to imply that it's beneficial for men to lie or something like that, right? It's just simply saying God is not a man, therefore he doesn't lie. We're having a similar usage of the word might here, right? It's not saying that they could possibly potentially be saved. Rather, it is saying that those who believe on his name will be saved. The opportunity now to be saved is here. That's true. But also, more importantly, the effect is here. They will actually be saved, right? Um, also, to this notion of look, look and be saved, and this is where I want to get to this idea of the idol argument. And this will also talk about some of the uh, areas here when we're talking about you know, good apologetics is necessary and all that kind of stuff. Totally agree. Um, my own walk with Christ started as a result of philosophy. Uh, the Lord got my attention with philosophy, which therefore led me to Moses. And Moses, of course, if you're not a believer, Moses is basically an ethicist. Uh, and I was very interested with Moses as an ethicist. Push came to shove, and eventually here I am as a Christian. I wouldn't believe apolog apologetics was unnecessary, obviously. I'm here having a conversation with you guys as an apologist. So why is it that a Calvinist who believes in things like predestination and things like that would say, hey, yeah, it's totally true. Look and be saved. Believe and be saved. Apologetics is necessary. All that other kind of stuff. Well, let me weave you guys a little story. I'm going to be very brief with it. But nevertheless, back in the day when the uh, Stoics, this is before Christianity was a thing, the Stoics were uh, putting forward the idea of predestination and Aristotle was putting forward the idea of not that, basically, right? Uh, I don't know if you can necessarily call what he said free will, but nevertheless, that's not even the point. The point is he didn't believe in destiny. And Aristotle laid out this argument. He said, why is it necessary for you to do something if you're predestined to the ends, right? In other words, if you're going to be healed, why go to the doctor? You're going to be healed regardless. And if you're not going to be healed, why go to the doctor? You're not going to be healed regardless, right? Now, the response that was given to Aristotle, and this was repeated again in the first, second, and third centuries by Christians who were arguing over the same thing, the response given to Aristotle was, what if it is that you are predestined to point B because you are predestined by means A, right? In other words, you are predestined to get well because you're predestined to go to a doctor who has the answers for you, or you're predestined not to get well because you are predestined not to go to a doctor who, do, who has the answers. Either you don't go to the doctor or he doesn't have the answers, right? Therefore, we can see that the means and the ends are both predestined on this way of thinking. And I'd like to say to you guys, I'd like to suggest to you guys, the same would be true under any sort of non-pagan version of determinism. Because of course, these are two pagan philosophers arguing about determinism, which by the way, just for the record, if anybody wants to say, oh, see, determinism is pagan. Well, they were arguing on the non-deterministic side too. So they both were uh, prevalent ideas in, in the pagan uh, areas of the world. But I digress. The means, the apologetics, the philosophy and the life of CJ or whatever it is that caused you to uh, first look at Christ and first be persuaded to him, right? Those means are just are, are not justified, excuse me, are uh, predestined just as much as those ends are predestined. In fact, those are the mechanism by which 
the end are predestined. So we can't say, see, look, see, believe, see, do apologetics, and therefore that means our side is true, because as it turns out, we as the Calvinists would actually share that same belief. You should do good. 50 seconds. All those other kinds of things, right? Um, I do want to point out just, this is kind of more for fun than anything else, but he said, Cornelius is not regenerate, but feared God. Uh, There's a rapper by the name of Aesop Rock uh, who has a lyric where he says, um, I don't believe in God, but God, I fear God. And (laughs) the point is just to say, you can have a fear of somebody without actually believing in them per se, right? But even more specifically in a more, you know, in a less jokey manner, um, I think we would both agree that there are plenty out there Ten believe in Jesus in a false way, Catholics, Mormons, and et cetera. So you can certainly fear God without being regenerate. Uh, all that being said, I'll go ahead and, and stop here. I don't have any more time. Other points I'd like to get to, but we have cross-examination for that. CJ, appreciate the 10-minute rebuttal to the audience. I am all caught up for the most part on the questions. I may have missed one or two, admittedly, as the chat is flying. The chat is having a lot of fun already, and we haven't even gotten into the cross-exam yet. So, Kelly, whenever you're ready, you've got your 10-minute rebuttal. Before we start, can you share a screen? Yes. Uh, Let's see here. How do I do that over here? I need to actually do it a different way here. Oh, do you want to share your screen rather than just slides? Yeah, I'm going to use like uh, that there. That good? Looks, Thank you. Looks good. Looks good. All right. When I start talking, you can uh, hit the clock. Okay. All right, go ahead. All right. Thank you again, CJ. So you opened up in your opening with uh, talking about total private and going right directly to Genesis um, six five, where it says here, their thoughts was evil uh, continuously, uh, was evil continuously. Now, of course, this in the context, yes, this is a, a very unique situation to which these people, which God brought judgment upon these people. And yes, in this situation, uh, it was. But we also know that Noah was considered a righteous man. In fact, in Genesis 7, 1, it states that he entered the ark, you and your household, you alone, I've seen to be righteous before me. So we know that even though most of the people there were not, we know not all, because Noah and his family definitely were followers of the Lord. You brought up Jeremiah 17, verse 9, I believe I wrote down. It says here, the heart is more deceitful than anything else, and desperately seek who can understand it. This is true. Um, we are born sinners. I would actually agree with you in this regard. I believe in uh, original sin, and I believe that that would even correspond with Romans chapter 5. Yes, Uh, but this is not teaching us that we don't have the ability to have a response or a choice to respond. Many people in the Old Testament, when they would call out to God, calling out to God is a, a form of prayer. Lord, save me. And people who wanted to know the Lord and to be saved This is a form of prayer. So I would sure hope you would not be saying that would not be the case. Now, in your next one here, you went on. You went into, um, I'm not sure what happened there. There we go, Romans 3. A classic example of Romans 3 when we go through verses 10 through all these 18 here. And and this, and for time, I can't get to all of this here. But what's interesting here is this is a classic example. This here is Paul just stating we are all under sin. It says here, We're all under sin, as it says in verse 9, right? There's none righteous. There's none who truly seeks after God. There's none who does good. 
Yet we know that Noah was called righteous. We know that Job was called blameless and upright, fearing God, turning away from evil, it says in Job 1.1. We know that we're told in Deuteronomy 4.29 that people are to seek the Lord. We're told that we're to seek the Lord in Job 5.8. We're told that uh, God calls people to seek him in Psalm 24, verse 7, Psalm 69.32. We know there are lots of scriptures, even being good in the Old Testament. Isaiah 38.3 says, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, I have walked before you in truth and whole heart, and I've done what is good in your sight. We see that the, in or Proverbs 17, or sorry, 11, 17 says, The merciful man does good himself, but the cruel man does harm to himself. So that of itself does not disprove what the discussion is about in today, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more shortly here. Now, I want to point out Romans 4 and Romans 5, because this really gets down to it. As I said earlier, I do not believe Abraham in the Old Testament was regenerated. But here we see here, the one who works his wages, not credit his favor. And this is we would agree. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies. This is we would both agree on. This is what we're talking about. Believing in the Lord. Uh, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. How are we justified? By faith. Now, I want to point this out here in verse 6 and 7, 8 and 9. It says here, why are we still helpless at the right time? Christ died for the ungodly. Everybody is ungodly. No exceptions. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though for perhaps a good man, someone would dare to even die. God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, this is the clear consistency of what we see throughout the scriptures. None of us are excluded. Now think about this over here in Romans chapter 10. This is what we see from Paul. This is what we many of us will use in apologetics that lead people to faith. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't this not what we tell everybody who's a, wanting to come out of Mormonism, wanting to come out from Jehovah's Witnesses, wanting to come out of Roman Catholicism, wanting to come out of oneness, wanting to leave Islam, turning from Unitarianism, whatever else that may be? Is this not what we tell them? Are we not pleading with people to turn to trust in Christ? For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. The mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction, Jew and Greek. The Lord is the same Lord of all. For whoever will call. And that word call, like I said earlier, prayer is a form of worship, calling out to God to be saved. This is what we see over and over in the scriptures. Now, you brought us, the, for the sake of time, I can't go to every little scripture, so I'm hitting the highlights here. Ephesians chapter 2, you talk about that we were dead, dead in sin. And again, this would be an agreement that we would partially have together. All of us, we are born in sin. This is true. We were dead in our trespasses, in sin. We formerly walked the course of this world according to the prince of power of the air. The Spirit's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, Paul even says it himself as well, formerly live in the lust, indulge in desires of flesh and all that. Yes. But notice here, here's what verse 5 says and doesn't say. Let's look what it first says, okay? Even though we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you've been saved. This does not tell you exactly how. It just says we were dead, and now we've been made alive in Christ. By grace, we've been saved. How is it that we've been saved by grace? Verse 8 states, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. Faith. Faith is now the assurance of things hoped for, yet the conviction of things yet not seen. Hebrews 11.1. It is by faith we reach out to him. Yes, it's not of ourselves. 
That's not of our flesh. That's me and CJ would agree. It's a gift of God. What's a gift of God? Salvation. We've been saved. Salvation. It's not a result of our works. No one should boast. And for any of you guys out there who think we aren't supposed to live according to the word in life, yes, we are to do good works according to verse 10. Now, let me show you something interesting here. The order salutis, as I pointed out in John 1, 12 and 13, this goes directly with what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He says here, in him, this meaning Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So here is what we call the ordo salutis, or as I said earlier in John 1, 12, as I was stating, those who received him, they then became something they were not. Why? Because they believed. It wasn't because of their birth. It wasn't because of their flesh. It wasn't because of their own will. It wasn't because of something they tried to muster up themselves, this supernatural birth. That is the work of God. We are called to receive and believe him, and then we become children of God. Here, the same thing for the order of salutis here, meaning the order of salvation. Here, listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having be also believed you were, future tense, meaning that after all this took place, you were sealed with him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So this is what we see here. This is what's going on. Now, I want to go back to John 3. I have a couple minutes still left here. I actually didn't think I was going to get through all that. I'm actually impressed. I didn't think I was going to get there. How about that? John chapter 3, extra credit now. I didn't think I'd make it here. John 3. Yes, John 3, as you rightly point out, says here, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that basic word in the Greek there is the Greek word horeo. has the meaning to see, to look upon, to experience, to perceive, to discern, or to be aware. Yes, yes, it is true. No one, if they are not born again, cannot grasp or understand or experience the kingdom of God. This is true. Same thing with verse 5. Verse 5 says, unless you are born, or sorry, verse um, verse 3, sorry. Truly, I say, unless you, are, you cannot enter, enter, see the kingdom of God. Verse 5. Truly, I say, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here, this is that supernatural birth, cannot enter. So we see the see and the enter here. Well, what is this here? Do not be marveled that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound, but you know not where it comes from. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Being born of the Spirit is that as a supernatural experience. Nicodemus didn't get it. And Jesus says to him, are you the, the, the teacher of Israel and you don't understand what I'm saying? This is why I said earlier, this is the verses that precede verse 16. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so whoever believes that word pastuo puts their complete trust, adheres, clings to him. Just like in the Old Testament, when the serpents were biting the Israelites, they were given the choice. You look to what Moses lifts up and you will live. Same thing Jesus says here. As a son of man be lifted up, if you want eternal life, you must look. You must believe. This is the Ordo Salutis. Thank you. Kelly, thank you very much for that rebuttal, that 10-minute rebuttal. Gentlemen, that concludes the opening statements, which were 20 minutes, and the 10-minute rebuttals. So very comprehensive so far.
and we are now moving into the open discussion or the cross-examination. So on the clock, what we have is 50 minutes, 25 minutes each. Since Kelly Powers just ended with his rebuttal, CJ Cox, if you are there currently, um, we're, we're going to get him asleep. Yeah. <laughs> Taking a quick nap before the uh, cross exam. My sermons, I put people to sleep. That's what it is. So, <laughs> no, I have. I uh, appreciate the Who game. needs sleeping pills when you have sermons from Kelly? So, okay, gentlemen, with that being said, cross exam time. And CJ, you get the first 25 minutes to lead the way in in discussion. So gentlemen, the floor is yours. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So <clears throat> the first thing I would want to ask you about is in uh, Roman. Let me go ahead and pull it up so I can quote it directly. But it's going to be from Romans chapter 3. Now, we agree there is none not righteous, or there is none who are righteous, rather. Um, I think we do have a disagreement here, though, on there is none who seeks after God. Now, I take that statement quite literally. There is not one single solitary person who seeks after God. Um, I'm not sure how the non-reformed could believe that statement. So I guess more more of an ask, a, uh, I'm more asking for explanation than asking a question. How do you square what appears to me to be a circle of none seeks after God, but yet we can seek after God before we are regenerate? Well, like I think what I was sharing before, when you're looking at Romans 3, and Paul is giving this, this overview of what's going on and he's leading into the gospel, the death, you know, what Christ is doing for us. He's giving this general uh, summarization of that we're all guilty. We're all guilty for sure. He says, you know, um, there's none righteous, not even one yet. Well, that would contradict Paul because we know Job and both Noah were called righteous in God's eyes. So that doesn't make sense. Um, we know there are people in the Old Testament that understood God. Uh, so that wouldn't make sense. There were people in the Old Testament who did seek after God. I even mentioned that earlier. Just give me just give you a couple more. Just I said it a little while ago. Moses says in Deuteronomy 4:29 that you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Uh, Job says in uh, Job 5:8, but as for me, I would seek God. So now, as I mentioned earlier, now this is probably where the big disagreement I think for myself and any other reformer is. As I mentioned in my opening, John 7, John 14, and John 20, I believe the case is that prior to Christ coming, being crucified, and then glorified, no one was what we would understand from this new birth perspective was regenerated prior to that. So then that would have to, the, the, the conclusion would be kind of, in a way, in my opinion, catastrophic for the total depravity because that would essentially say everybody prior to Christ was actually able to somehow have some kind of seeking after the Lord. Now, let me give you one more quick thing here. I don't believe that anyone who does come to believe in Christ or follow God or something like that, that they woke up one day and said, I'm going to do it all of my own. I believe that God through creation, Romans 1, through the Holy Spirit, John 16, through even angelic angels at times or whatever the gospel God first reaches out to us. I have no hesitation saying that as a non-Calvinist, right? I'm just saying that based on what God reveals to us, 
before we've actually become with that born again or regeneration, we have the ability to either receive or reject what's been given to us. So to the point of what I, I think would be kind of a perceived contradiction um, with Job and Noah, you would recognize that they are certainly, and now I, I don't agree with what you say about regeneration, but we'll get there in a minute. Um, you would agree though, at least that they are believers, right? Noah is not a, a, is not Confucius, for example, a generally good guy who nevertheless doesn't believe in Yehovah. Oh, well, sure. I mean, we could go, yeah, we would have agreement there for sure. Like go down to Hebrews 11. There's a list of a lot of people of what we call the faith hall of fame, right? Like there's a list of people that I right. would say were true, genuine believers. But I would say, as I said, it said ago, according to John 7 and John 14 and John 20, that they would have not had the Holy Spirit was we're talking about prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. But at the very least, we would have to agree that it seems to say when one says none does good and another one says, but these Old Testament saints did good, that does kind of seem to be a little bit of a non sequitur, right? Because those Old Testament saints would assumedly operate like Abraham, where he believed God and that was imputed unto him for righteousness, right? Sure. I mean, you know, a lot of these references are true when you, when you and I'm sure you probably have even done it. When you're looking at Romans here, this is not just like Paul making this up. He's actually quoting a lot from the book of Psalms, mm -hmm. Psalms 14 and other places where it's kind of a collective. And he's just making this general statement about salvation in general. None of us can do it of ourselves. It's it's this, the salvation aspect, of course, that me and you would have this complete agreement. It's of God. But when he's going through this here, he goes through this whole thing. So there's even no fear of God before the guys. Well, yet we know many people in the Old Testament who had fear of God. So when it goes on to verse 19, just to go on just a little bit farther, it says, for we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So I think what Paul is saying is, look, we're all accountable. It does not matter who we are. All of us are. And that's why it says, by the works of law, no flesh will be justified in sight. In other words, this, that's why it goes to Romans 4. I mean, you again, we have agreement. We cannot work for it. We cannot muster up enough good works. You can't dress up enough. You can't tithe enough. You can't, uh, you know, be baptized a thousand times and it makes you any more holy or saved. It's all by grace, right? And so I think when I'm looking at Romans 3 without, and I, and I say this respectively, I know where you're coming from. I do. I've tried very hard to understand Calvinists for many, many years. And, and I know that people kind of look at me funny when I say that, but I kind of, I can only say this one way and I don't mean it to be bad. I sure. try very hard when I'm looking at scripture, both in its immediate context and then also collectively around without biased. And I believe if you don't if you don't read into the total depravity aspect in the Romans three, um, you'll have a different perspective and just allow the overall context of what Paul is trying to get to that he's talking about. We're all held accountable. He's not teaching total depravity here. Well, and so to to get back to I think the point of the the first not the first question the the question that led to uh, that answer, I do just want to point out we're talking about. Uh, at the very least, believers who are counted as righteous, as counted as righteous, right? And so I'm going to get here to why I think they would uh, still be considered regenerate in a moment. But I just want to say, when he says, none seek after God, and then you give the example of 
believers, those who are who are going to meet one day in heaven and they're righteous and seeking after God, it doesn't really seem to me to be a problem there because that's precisely the kinds of people who under the Calvinist worldview and, and under a biblical worldview, I might add, apart from Calvinism entirely, who would seek after God, right? In other words, for Job to seek after God, for Job to be considered righteous is different than for the Buddha to be considered righteous, right? Yeah. Can I make one comment on what you just said? Yeah. And I'm, I'm asking a question only for clarification because I know it's your cross-examination, okay? In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is, you know, Matthew 6, sorry, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, right? Would you have the view that when he's speaking, he's speaking to all the crowds in general and that that he's not speaking to regenerate people, but he's speaking to unregenerate people? A uh, mixed bag, right? I think that when people address crowds, they tend to address them as what they say they are and probably with the caveat of it could potentially be others, right? So like if I go to a church and I'm talking to people, I'm going to assume everybody there is a Christian because it's a church. At the same time, though, I'm going to recognize that it's entirely possible somebody's walking in for the first time or doesn't really believe it or is backslidden or all those kinds of things. So it, right. you know, everything there can be a mixed bag of elect and non-elect. Well, the reason why I asked that, and the only reason why I asked that just for clarification, because in Matthew 7, it says, you know, when Jesus is speaking to the crowds, we know he's speaking to all the people there. He says in verse 7, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek, seek, and you will find. Knock, and it'll be open to you. For everyone receives... And he who seeks, and to him who knocks, it will be open. I believe here Jesus is speaking to the crowds, and he's actually encouraging them to seek. If what you have shared from Romans 3 is absolutely 100% in that concrete way, then here Jesus would be con contradicting what we'd be reading throughout the scriptures. So I would disagree, and my main reason for disagreeing would be, well, of course I would, right, because we're debating. But nevertheless. <laughs> um, and you were predestined to, just so you know. I'm just well, uh, you know, I don't even disagree <laughs> with that, actually. Um, but nevertheless, I think that, you know, we, we go back to that idle argument of the means and the ends are both uh, equally predestined. Uh, and I think that this would be another situation where you say to everybody, seek, because the seeking is predestined just as much as the finding is predestined. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean all people will be seeking because not everybody is predestined to find, right? But with yeah. that being said... I want to, because we, we have a light agreement in that the only people who are considered to be righteous in the Old Testament are believers, right? Even if they're not. So there is still some, there's still a real sense in which we can say this statement is absolutely true. Now, you're saying that I believe, and I'm speaking as if I were you, I believe that Romans 3 is trying to make the point that all are sinners and uh, are therefore falling short of the glory of God, right? Well, that, now, yeah, oh, sorry, sorry, go keep going. I, I thought you were, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, you're totally fine. So when we look at Romans chapter three, and he says stuff like all sin and fall short of the glory of God, or there is none who does good, no, not one. Why can we say those statements are genuinely true of the non-believer and even just in general? Because even we as believers are, are, are uh, you know, we still have the flesh to deal with. Of course, Paul goes, ad infinitum about that in various books, but nevertheless, why can we say those statements are ultimately true of the non-believer, but the one that says none seeks after God isn't? It's like, yes, it's true. Nobody is righteous. Yes, it's true. All fall short of the glory of God, but it's not actually true 
that nobody seeks him. You see what I'm saying? Well, like, well, why are, well, why are well I wouldn't even agree because, well, because I've already demonstrated that um, there were people who uh, not only were instructed and sought uh, God in the Old Testament, um, Jesus even encourages that. Uh, here it says, that, uh, you know, that no one does good. It's interesting, uh, the word good here, if you just, I, I shared a couple of scriptures earlier, it was quick though, but Proverbs 31 talks about, you know, a good wife. So she does him good and not evil. She does him good. Well, yet over there it says no one does good. How does that work? The merciful man does himself good. The cruel man does himself harm. Proverbs eleven seventeen. 17. Uh, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to your name. Psalm 92, 1. There's a list of scriptures where it does talk about us doing, even Jesus in Matthew 7, what I was just sharing a second ago, um, and just as he was concludes, he says, well, what if there's a man among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give get good, get good, speaking in tongues now, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father or your father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him, right? So this seems to be, there's the one hand where we're able to do things that are good. There's the other hand, we of ourselves are of our own nature are not good. Even in fact, the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to, eternal, to get eternal life? He says, good teacher, right? Well, if regeneration was needed, he wouldn't have gave him the explanation that he did. He would have said, no chance, buddy. Um, but he also says to him, good teacher. And what does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? No one is good, but God alone. So essentially, God alone is the only one who truly is good or holy of himself. But it's not in the sense that we still can at times do things that are good. We can, but we of ourselves, of our sin nature, fall short every single time. Well, I think there's a, I just, I got to be very uh, blunt, I guess. It sounds almost to me like you're saying this is a contradiction in scripture and that Paul is perhaps incorrect here in what he says in Romans chapter three. Now, I think in the, in the examples you give, right? For example, Proverbs, you know, a good woman does this, that, and the third, right? Number one, we can assume somebody listening to Proverbs is likely a believer, but also number two, there is varying levels of what you might call good, right? Like when I say Alfredo is good, I don't mean the same thing as my wife is good. Those aren't the same. One I'm saying has a, has a pleasant taste, and the other one I'm saying treats well, I'd me say right. marinara is better. Well, and fair <laughs> enough, right? But but you see what I mean? So like th there's two separate problems I think that we're running into that I think would explain. Well, it's, it's defining what, what good means. Like when you, and again, to be fair to you, I mean, in a short time, we are, we're limited, of course. Right. Right. So, but when you read Romans three and you just have the stereotype, none are good, none do good. Well, that of itself is a contradiction. If you take it to that absolute, that's why I was saying the overall context of what Paul is saying is we're all held accountable so i don't believe paul is a contradiction i believe sadly what i'm trying to not the word sadly what i'm trying to say is where you're coming from you're reading from the lenses that you have come to from a reformed perspective what i'm trying to say is i'm trying to read it from the immediate context allowing paul to give us this overall context and then looking at other scripture where it talks about yeah there are people who seek god even jesus encouraged it there are people who are righteous yet we're sinners yet there are people who do good yet god alone is the only one good I'm seeing this overall context, how it all works together.
So I want to reemphasize one other question here before I, I move on to my next line, which is when it comes to those who are doing good, do you know of any non-believers who are said to be righteous? Said to be righteous. Yeah. Oh, which, well, be, which I think is what Paul would mean by doers of good, right? In a general sense, he might say one is good to their mother or something like that. But as far well, as those who do good would be right, righteous, right? Like, for example, well, I, I mean, we have to be careful not to read into what Paul said there because then we're reading our own interpretation there, right? But I would say to you this, though. You know, those who are in the Lord, Old or New Testament, are called, you know, saints, holy ones, and righteous. So in that sense, that would be applied to believers. I guess right. the question would be then, well, how does one come to believe in the Lord in the Old Testament? How does one come to believe in the Lord in the New Testament? That's, I think that's where me and you would have the disagreement. Well, and so the reason I ask that is because, so we agree on that, that those who are in Christ or before Christ, at least nevertheless believers in Yehovah, um, those are the ones who God would call righteous, not because their deeds are perfect or anything like that, but because they are in uh, they, they are in his saving graces. Sure. Right? Well, look at Abraham, for example, right? Abraham in the Old Testament, he wasn't even classified as a Jew at the time. He was a, you know, a Chaldean from the land of Ur. Right. God called him and Abraham followed. And then God told him what was going to take place. We know this, me and you would have this agreement for sure in Genesis 15. And because he believed, he then was given the righteousness of God. Right. So he believed, he then became righteous. This is the same implication I'm trying to say with us as believers today. When we believe the truth or Jesus, we then would become righteous or become made alive. Right. So then my, my point then there is to say, it, which complete agreement with what was just said there. But my point then is when we say none is righteous and none seeks God, but then we say, well, this guy is righteous and seeking God. And it's like, right, because they're a believer. Remember, we're talking about whether or not if we just get down to the brass tacks here, does the unbeliever apart from the grace of God seek after God by his own will, right? That's what, that's what the total depravity doctrine is, that we're not capable of seeking after God, of following God by our own volition. And we say, no, we as Calvinists say, no, that's not possible. And you say, well, yeah, but look at these guys. They did righteous. And it's like, right, but they were believers. Sure. They have the think righteousness of Christ. I guess right. what I was trying to say, though, is that just to make this statement that none seek, none do good, none understand, to have that blanket statement as if it's like an absolute is an actual contradiction as a general of the whole Testament. I would agree with what you just said a second ago in partial that those in the Old Testament, old, you know, either Jew or Gentile, the Gentiles who were proselytes that came in and believed, the, the sojourners, the foreigners, all of them at some point would have sought. I mean, look at the story of Ruth with Naomi. Naomi, the good story, she's a foreigner. She's a, a, a Moabite, if I remember correctly. And she says, your God will be my God. So she made a choice, right? She made a choice. So she chose from being an idolater of her own foreign ways to now follow the way of Ruth. So yeah, at some point, all of us have to make that decision. Even Joshua in the Old Testament says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, of course, there's that point. But then when we've come to believe in the Lord, Old or New Testament, then, therefore, we are righteous, not because of ourselves, but because now we're following after the way of the Lord. 
Right. And so then, so final question on this line, and we'll move on to another one then. So if that is true of doing good, those who are said to do good, those who are said to be righteous are those who are in Christ, right? In other words, Paul's statement, it does seem still holds for those who are outside of Christ. None does good, none is righteous, etc. All fall short of the glory of God. So now I go back then to my original question here as far as those who seek after God. If none outside of Christ do good or are righteous, how can we say any outside of Christ seek after God? Well, this takes me right back to Matthew 5 or Matthew 7. Remember, he's speaking to the crowds. Remember, he's speaking to, I believe, unregenerate people. This is what I believe. We have no other reason to believe anything otherwise from the text. And he says to them, ask, it shall be given to you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf? Will give him a stone or if he asks for a fish he will not give him a snake will you and then here's to follow it up if you then being evil if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children so here it's still the same thing these are unregenerate people jesus calls them evil he said you know how to do you know how to give good gifts you know how to do good to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him. So I believe, yeah, they themselves are not righteous, but if they truly seek, as Jesus says, if they truly knock, as Jesus says, um, these people will be rewarded from the Lord in regards to their prayers. If they're seeking after the Lord, the Lord will hear and respond to them. I did say that'd be my last on that line. So it will be. Um, so let's move on. I think to another point now, um, you had made the claim that there were none who were regenerate before um, Jesus Christ had died and resurrected. Uh, I would argue that there are certainly points in the scripture that would argue against that, one of which we've already hinted to. So, in fact, we already said it, so I'll just uh, stick with that. What does it mean when it when um, God says of Abraham or Moses, I guess he's the one writing? Uh, that he believed God and it was imputed unto him as righteousness. What does that mean? Well, me, this is where me and you would stand pretty much toe to toe together. Um, that word uh, imputed is the Greek word lagidzomai, which has the meaning to be charged with, to be given to you on the account of what Christ has done. It's his righteousness. We would read about that in Romans 4 four and five and six there are those verses where to everyone believes it's been given to them uh imputed his righteousness the righteousness of god not our righteousness but because of our faith our belief it's been given to us on our account so same with abraham as paul is talking about there because he believed god gave him or imputed to him the righteousness because of his belief so then would we say if, if he has the imputed righteousness of God, which we would say is the imputed righteousness of Christ, right? Uh, in, what, in what sense can we say he's not regenerate? Because the Holy Spirit was not yet given in that context prior to Christ's coming. I would say this is where, again, me and you would have some agreement. I believe, unlike our friend David Preston, who has a very wacky beliefs, um, in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. 
clearly. We read about that in Habakkuk 2.4. It talks about that we are saved by faith, from faith to faith, right? Uh, Hebrews 11 talks about the hall of faith people, right? All the different people that I would say in the Old Testament who died in faith in the Lord, they died in waiting, going to what I think me and you would have agreement even, Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise. And then when Christ was crucified and resurrected, now that wall of separation has been removed. Now they were able to enter into the very presence of God. So I believe just like Abraham or Moses or Noah or other people who were genuine followers of the Lord in the Old Testament, they were righteous, but they weren't necessarily regenerated as we understand the New Testament terms. They weren't made alive. And I have a really good question for you. And I can't say it right now. I'm going to ask you on this exact question when I get my chance, but I'll leave it at that for now. So then I guess my last question on this particular point then would be, um, would you separate between things like the imputed righteousness of Christ and salvation and on the other side, uh, being born again or being regenerate? Would you say those are two different things? Can you say that one more time? Would you say that having Christ's righteousness imputed onto you or being saved are different than being born again or being regenerate? Talking from a New Testament perspective? Right. No, I believe that would all be the same. But in the Old Testament, you would say there is a, a separation? I believe so. Okay. Now, one quick thing. I don't I don't want to complain. Donnie, you're, you just said three minutes and... I, mine shows 10 seconds left. What happened? Well, we'll go with my timer because I'm at 22 minutes and 30 seconds. So we'll say about wow. two and a half minutes. The Calvinism God is on his side. To, I'm not just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, show you, I'll show you my clock. I'm not lying. Look. I believe you. I believe you. But whatever uh, right. is going All on right. in the multiverse, CJ... Wow. You have exactly. <laughs> anyway, I'm, you, I'm glad we're continuing talking. I'm having a good time with CJ. I'm really enjoying this. Like Go ahead, CJ. You have exactly two, uh, two more minutes. Thank you. Um, I'll make this quick. Uh, I'm going to go now to some questions from Romans 8. So uh, Romans 8, Paul says, The carnal man is enmity with God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In context, he has already stated those who are in the flesh are the non-believers. Those who are in the spirit are the believers. Not necessarily like, because, you know, he'll talk later on about we can walk in the flesh or in the spirit being believers. But here in this passage, he's specifically having those in the flesh are the non-believers and those in the spirit are believers. And he says those in the flesh cannot please God and they're not even able to be subject to the law of God. So my question then would be, well, first, let me start with this one. I think me and you would both agree faith is the most is the single most pleasing thing a man can do to God, correct? No, I would actually see love. Okay. Um that's when the God says, Love the Lord your God with all your might. So but I understand well, what you're so, trying to say. So, I understand what you're trying to say though. I do get you trying to say. Well, and to be fair though, let's actually I because I, I can actually work with that. Let's let's rephrase. Um, would you say loving God? Jesus says that's the most important commandment. Is loving God then the single most pleasing thing to God? I we're going to make that the last question. So take your time to respond, Kelly, and then we're going to change it up. Go ahead. 
Well, well, well I mean, if I may, then can I add to that real quick so that you give, can answer? Give both? him a little sure. wiggle worm here. We're going to give him some grace. There we go. Um, um, well, so I just want to say if the, and if the answer to that question is yes, yeah, how can one who is not capable of ple- being pleasing to God do the thing which is the most pleasing to God, being those who are in the flesh? And then I'll, I'll yield there. Yeah. Well, I, I, well, the funny thing is, I mean, no, no problemo. Um, you know, back in Romans 7, we, we have this long list of stuff that I can't read all of it right now, but it goes back to verse 14 all the way to verse 25, and there's this struggle. Paul has this struggle. He says, he's the very evil that I practice. Paul recognized that he had evil in his own life, in his own flesh, and he says, these are the things I don't want to do. I, I do the things I don't want to do, and the very things I want to do, I don't do. He says, the sin that dwells in me. He says, I find this principle of evil that's present in me. The one who wants to do good, I can joyfully concur. The law of God, of good in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. So we see this struggle. So of our own flesh, um, there is really nothing that we can do that pleases God. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free, right? So when we get to, uh, you know, in, in Romans 8, a very, again, common uh, use for uh, the objection to um, not uh, that regenerate has to be there. Uh, the objection against uh, those who would not believe that. Um, here, the, the law of the spirit of life in Christ, verse 2, has set you free. The law of sin and death. So he's, verse 1, I mean, it's, it's more of an affirmation. Look, even though we struggle in the, in the flesh, us as Christians, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He wants to encourage these people he's talking to, right? He says what the law couldn't do, Weak to the flesh, God did. So, in other words, the law could never save us. Number one, we both agree that the law of itself could never save us. We're all fall short. Galatians 3 says the law was a tutor to lead us to have faith in Christ. He says the requirement of the law might be fulfilled us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So, again, this is the difference. This would also be some of Galatians 5. Don't walk after flesh, but walk after. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, talking about that kind of lifestyle. But if you keep reading, it says, for the mindset in the flesh is death. So where's our mindset? The mindset in the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset in the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is interesting. So this is just a statement of fact. If we are living a life in the flesh, this is unpleasing to God. This is plain and so this is not talking about the separation of a Christian and non-Christian. This is a statement of fact. Everyone who walks after the flesh, this is not good. This is a very thing that that God w- would frown upon those walking after the flesh. So this is a, and as he goes on talking about, but you are not in the flesh, right? He's currently don't walk after the flesh, walk in the spirit. And he goes on talking about um, subjecting yourself to the ways of the spirit can't get into all the full answer, but to keep reading verses 12 uh, through 17. Now we're no longer in bondage because now we have the spirit who's now going to help us walk through this thing. That's not probably the best answer ever, but I know time is going. So I want to wrap it up there. Ellie and CJ, excellent first 25 minutes plus 25 roughly plus. three minutes of bonus <laughs> footage after credits, Marvel style footage. So Kelly, <laughs> CJ, again, great job. And the chat is very lively tonight as well. We've got a lot of questions coming in. And so I am all caught up. If anybody in the chat does have questions for the debaters tonight, again, the topic, does the Bible teach regeneration precedes faith? Just make sure you're tagging me. 
Okay, gentlemen, we are now going to transition into the 25 minute portion where Kelly Powers gets to lead the way. Gentlemen, this is where I get, this is where I get 35 minutes, right? Right. Yeah. And, and this is where things get heated. So uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to still be. And I promise. I promise. I promise. Uh, I'll hit my clock here. So thank you again, CJ. So let me ask you a question right off the start. What is the gospel? Uh, the gospel is that um, the son of God has come as both man and God here in the flesh uh, to walk amongst us, live a perfect life. And that he died, resurrected, and uh, died on the cross, and was resurrected for the remission of sins, so that all who believe on him and submit to his lordship shall be saved. What must a person do to be saved? Uh, believe that gospel, specifically that gospel, because some would say believe in Jesus. I think that's too vague. Obviously, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus per se, um, but specifically believe the gospel. And when I use the word, what must they be saved? When I use the word saved, would you agree that that talks about them becoming a new creation, becoming a child of God, becoming a Christian? Yes. So what must a person do to become a Christian? Uh, I think a, a person must be uh, believing in what I would call, I guess, the, the core doctrines, right? That uh, Jesus is God. God is the God of the Old Testament. Um, he is the monotheistic creator God, right? That he was here in flesh, both as man and God, died on the cross for sins, rose again on the third day, and uh, that all who believe on him and submit to his lordship shall be saved. So notice I've used this a few times now. What must a person do to be saved? What must a person do to become a Christian? What must a person do to become made alive? And all those answers... Regeneration is not the answer. So this is where kind of this this is where it gets to the crux of when we're sharing the gospel, right? You know, in Acts chapter two, Peter, we know Pentecost takes place, tongues come upon them, the crowds, the Jewish people are claiming that these guys are drunk, drinking a bunch of wine. Paul, Peter says, "We're not drunk. It's like nine o'clock in the morning." He then gives them this great explanation that this was a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. You, these are things me and you would have agreement on, no doubt. Right. He then gets into explaining the gospel, saying this Jesus whom you've crucified, right? This man that was hung upon a tree, God raised him from the dead. And he goes on explaining after explaining, even pointing to Old Testament scriptures. We see these references over and over there, right? And then we see in verse 36 and 37, as he's sharing it with them, it says that they were cut to the heart and they asked Peter, what must we do? And what did Peter say? That's uh, Acts 2.38, uh, believe and be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, it actually says repent, right? Yeah, repent and be baptized, yeah. So what does it mean to repent? Uh, I think repent. So the repent just by itself is a turning away or a changing of mind, that metanoia. Uh, I think in the Christian context specifically, uh, repentance is to turn away from uh, your sin if sin is used nebulously. What I mean by that is if if a believer 
uh, perhaps forgets about a sin that happened 15 years ago or still struggles with a particular sin or something like that. One might say, oh, you're not repenting, but that's not really necessarily what's in, in uh, what is meant, although that's obviously an important thing. But specifically, it's turning away from the world, turning away from sin, turning away from a godless life and towards Jesus and all that other stuff, of course, will fall into play uh, as Ephesians 2.10 says. So repentance would be to turn away from sin and to God. And in that context, if you remember correctly, Peter says, repent and be baptized. And me both, we, me, we would have this complete agreement. We know what the physical water is not what saves anybody, right? He's talking right. about this washing, being washed in Christ, of course. So our Church of Christ friends out there don't get all goony-goo-goo right now and thinking we're teaching something we're not. But Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins. And what does he say? What will happen when they do that? That they shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So they'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost after they repent? Um. So in, as far as what he's laying out there, that would be correct. Now, I would say that there is a, um, a, a little bit of the well, – how do I – put this i'm trying to word i know what i'm trying to say i'm just trying to word it so it's not nonsense um you know i talked earlier about this old idol argument that the greek philosophers used um and the argument back and forth for the determinist and the non-determinist was already well established by 300 bc right and what the uh stoics who were determinists said is that well the means and the ends are equally determined and this was in response to aristotle's well why is there a a like, why be, why not just be idle? In other words, why is there this process? Kind of like what you're talking about here, right? This process of believe and then, you know, and so on and so forth. And, and Zeno of Sidium had said <clears throat> that the reason for this was because you're predestined to the ends by way of being predestined to the means. And so what I would say here is you are predestined to the ends of a regenerate life. Uh, you are prede uh, predestined to the ends of salvation. You are predestined to the ends of, um, belief in Christ, all these other kinds of things, because of the means, which are that you believed in Jesus Christ. Uh, and obviously that would mean that the grace is coming beforehand. I also think I take Ephesians 2, 8 to be a little bit more literal. And what I mean by that, not literal in the sense of uh, the meaning is literal. We would both agree the meaning is literal, but literal in that the order is literal. So um, by grace through faith, grace proceeds. Faith is the mechanism by which you receive the grace, right? So it's still salvation now, by faith, to but not nevertheless. Be, to not be rude, and I, and, I, and I get what you're trying to say, and right. I appreciate that. We're not talking about Aristotle. We're not talking about Greek philosophy. We're not talking about any of that. We're, we're in Acts 2, and this is Peter, who is an apostle of Jesus, and he says, repent, be baptized in Jesus Christ, and you shall receive. So this seems to be what I said earlier. It's kind of an order of what we call order salutis, the order of which we call out, we believe, we repent, we turn, and then we become something. That's kind of what I was pointing to. You know the story in Philip in Acts chapter 8. Let me read it to you over here. Acts chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, again, to make our Church of Christ friends happy. Uh, the eunuch answered Philip and said, Actually, let me just back up just a little bit here. Um, in verse uh, uh, let's see here, 30, Philip ran up and heard him reading from Isaiah the prophet. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? 
In verse 31, he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer silent. For he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate to his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Now, we both would agree. We know he's talking about Isaiah 53 here, right? The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning from this scripture, and he preached Jesus to him. As he went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? So what prevented Philip, or sorry, this eunuch, as Philip is sharing the gospel with him, what prevented this eunuch from being water baptized? Um, I don't recall exactly what he said, but I believe he says nothing and, and baptizes him there, right? So basically says, you know, let's let's just go ahead and do it now. Well, verse 37 says, now some, some people will contend with it, I don't. Philip said, verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water and Philip as well, and they baptized him. Here's my basic point. This is just another example going through the book of Acts where I'm sharing different examples with different people right now. How the gospel is being shared and what's being shared and how people then are supposed to respond to the message that's being shared. That was my whole point there. Let me take you to Acts chapter 10. We talked well, about if it. I'm, Go ahead. If, if you, you want to make a comment, go ahead. Go ahead. So this is why I brought up that whole point about the idol argument, right? It's because essentially what is being what is being put forward here is like there's a response necessary in order to receive salvation. I would agree. Calvinist that's, doesn't disagree with that. the case, yeah, yeah. The, but the Calvinist doesn't disagree with that, right? We are simply saying that the um, that the grace of God on the individual is something that has preceded any of that, and that the natural man, apart from that grace, has been unable to do such things. In other words, all those who are called will hear, right? Those who were not called will not hear. Uh, Jesus says he would comes it, only for his own sheep. And I, I think that, that they'll be reading into a lot of these verses what you would like them to say rather than what they actually say? I don't think so at all. Uh, in fact, I can, I can only speak for me personally, uh, but I was shall we say, desperately opposed to Calvinism. In fact, there are videos of me, uh, probably 2020, 2021, uh, arguing against people who would label me with the term Calvinism because I was, you know, I, I have described myself as being uh, dragged kicking and screaming into Calvinism. I did not want it to be true. So mm -hmm. for me, it's like, you know, I could see why somebody might believe that. That sounds very loving. Well, in a way, you know, the truth sometimes does need to beat you over the head, right? There are many, like, for example, I know people who don't want to admit Jesus is Lord. And if they ever do admit it, they will be brought in kicking and screaming. Nevertheless, that is the truth, no yeah. matter how much they would like to. to okay, fair it. enough. I respect that. I don't agree. I, I, I know that's how you read this. So I just want to move on. No problem. So Acts 10, we talked about this briefly earlier. This was part of my opening. You kind of gave a little bit of response to it. In Acts chapter 10, it says there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a satirian of what is called the Italian cohort. 
a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Would you, of your opinion, based on what we read in Acts 10, believe that this guy was one who generally was praying to God, one who had general, like real fear for the Lord, or would you think this was counterfeit? I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any reason to suggest it was counterfeit. Um, you know, I think, I think that he was probably at least as genuine as he could be seeking after God. Okay. So right there now, not to try to pin you in a hard way, but you just said it right there. So he is a general, generally honest, genuinely honest guy seeking the Lord, fearing God praying to God, and yet you know and I know he wasn't regenerated. So how could that even be possible? Well, because I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that statement. I, I'd say that I think the efficacious grace of God is certainly present in his life. First off, we see where it ends up going, right? So that certainly would seem to indicate that the efficacious grace of God is present in his life. But then there's also are you the question, saying, why is he praying? Are you saying he's regenerated right there, or did it happen later? I think there might be a physical experience of being baptized by the Holy Ghost, as you might say. You know, obviously this kind of thing was accompanied by signs and wonders in the apostles' days. Um, but as far as the uh, regeneration unto salvation, I think he must be, right? He's praying. He's doing the things which Paul said in, in uh, Romans chapter 310, that the unregenerate man does not do, seeking you after use, God. You use, the word, things like that. you use the word he must be. So this is where I have to, as a friend, say to you, that's where you have to read the lenses that you have into that text to make it make sense. Because we know as Peter goes on preaching to Cornelius, he is not a Christian yet. He's not a believer in Jesus yet. We know that Peter gives him the gospel later on, the death, burial, and resurrection, and talks about all who believe in him will receive forgiveness of sins. And then they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And Peter acknowledged it. That's when they received. So prior to that, he didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And yet he is an unregenerate man, as you just said in your own words, one who is seeking after God. Well, I don't see, I, I think that last part I would disagree with because as far as the being, now I freely admit, like I said earlier, um, we do believe that there is a, a order here that God has laid out his, his ends and his means both being uh, equally predestined, right? I won't get into the whole thing again, but nevertheless, everybody heard what I said there, right? Uh, you're going, you're predestined to get well because you're predestined to go to the doctor that has the answers. Um, but with that being said, I think that, you know, you still have, you have a couple of questions here. Why is he seeking after God? I'm not asking this in the sense to answer. I'm asking it That's totally, fine. Right? I'm, I'm good with um, that. And, you know, we have passages like, I think, Romans 8, 7, uh, Hebrews, which talks about you can't please God without faith, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Romans 3, 10 and stuff like that, which are all saying that that seemingly should not be a thing that's possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, none according to you, none does according, according to where you're coming from. That's your view, right? Right. It is, which, so when he says Romans 3 in uh, Romans 3, 10, <clears throat> um, that none seeks after God. I think that that there's because there's two things that that can possibly mean. One is 
just a falsehood, which is ultimately literally none. Or one would be, and I think this is right, the non-believer, right? So if he's seeking after God, at least to some extent, he must be a believer. And we know that ultimately that is true. I mean, you don't pray to something you don't believe in, right? Um, now, does he believe the you know the full thing? Is his faith perfected at this point? Obviously not, because there's the rest of the story that takes place in Acts chapter 10, uh, where he is submitting to the Lordship of Christ and all these kinds of things. Um, but... Why is he praying? Why is he seeking after God? Why is he doing these things which non-believers, according to the scriptures, don't do? I yeah. think when we see the ends of this, we get the we see the reason why the efficacious grace of God is present. Well, I would submit to you that again, as I've demonstrated before, we are instructed in scripture. Even unregenerate people are instructed to <clears> seek <throat> after God. And there were people who did seek after God and prior to being even regenerated. And here's a classic example of Cornelius, a perfect 100%. There's no, there's no way to, around it. He's not a Christian. He's not regenerated. He is one who fears God, seeks God, as you were saying. But what's interesting is yet you asked the question of why. How could that even be possible, right? Because it is possible. That's what we're talking about. The scriptures are, are, are all working together. We have to be careful not to read this verse over into this context and this verse, we have to look, what is the immediate context of what we're looking at right now? And as Peter goes on to give Cornelius and those men with him, the death, burial, and resurrection, we then know when they receive the gift of the Holy, Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, this when they would receive the gift of eternal life in their hearts. Let me read to you Acts 15, where I mentioned earlier in my opening, where Peter's defending these guys. He says in Acts 15, um, 7, he says, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. So they were given the Holy Spirit, not before, but after. Just as he also did to us, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts again by faith. So this is the consistent theme that I'm pointing out uh, in the book of Acts. So I just want to move on from that. You've shared, I've shared. We'll let the audience kind of go from there. In Acts 16, you know the story with um, Paul and Silas. Right. They're in prison. They're in jail. The jail opens up and the jailer is worried and He's, he actually is not sure what's going to take place, and there's a lot that could be said in that, but for the sake of time, we'll just get right to the meat of it. He says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he is an unregenerate guy. He's not born again. He's calling out saying, what must I do? Acts 2.38, Acts 8, Acts 10, same kind of thing. What must I do? Paul says, what does Paul say? Believe. I think he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Yeah. Is that the right verse? So what I'm talking about here is I'm going through example after example after example. This is the presentation that we see. The gospel is offered, given, and then they respond. Let me follow it up with this in Acts 17. It goes in the next chapter. And I'm going to ask you a question more direct here. Acts 17, let me get your thoughts on this. It looks like I still have about six minutes left here. 
Acts 17, verses 1 through 4 state. Now when they had traveled through, I'm going to pronounce this word wrong, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, giving and explaining evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So let me ask you this right away question, because you know I'm into apologetics. I'm sure you even are into apologetics. What is the value of Paul going for three Sabbaths, going to these Jews in the synagogue, giving and providing evidence that Jesus is the Christ to these Jews if they have no ability to believe? Uh, those are the means which the Lord has provided for the, for belief to be fostered. Uh, and, and this is why I keep going back to this idea of the idol argument, right? This is, this has been debated well before uh, not only us, not only Calvin, but before Jesus had even, had even been born yet. Right. Um, there is, I think a, a very serious, um, lack of understanding, if I may be frank, in the non-determinist of all flavors when they say, what is the point in doing the thing that leads to X if X is predestined? And the answer is quite simply, the thing that leads to X is also predestined. It's the mechanism by which X is predestined. So that, when could, I, maybe, that example, could be our next debate on that one. That was not our topic today though, right? Well, it is though, right? Because the means and the ends have to be. Because this is a, this is an understanding that I think has to be given uh, to the non-Calvinist when we're saying why be why give apologetics to somebody if they can't understand it. Well, because that apologetics is the mechanism God has chosen to foster understanding. But I thought they can't believe unless they're regenerated. That's the Holy Spirit, not not the means of apologetics. You could give apologetics all day; it could mean squat unless they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's when they can believe. Apologetics means nothing unless they've been regenerated. Isn't that correct? Well, but it not it, it's true, but let's be honest. Me and you both being apologists have probably given hours, if not days, if not weeks, if not months, if not years of our time to somebody, and it did mean squat. Because they ultimately, ah, eh, you know, I don't believe, that's just mumbo jumbo and magic and fairy tales. You know what I mean? And it, in hindsight, it seems like a big giant waste of time. Now, of course, God knows we don't. God had us do that for a reason. Uh, but nevertheless, I think all of us would recognize that we get we sow this seed, so to speak, and there isn't always a crop coming out, right? I'm got it. My time's going fast. I'm so sorry. No, you're fine. Um, in verse four, it says this. Just after what I was reading in Acts 17, it says this: Jesus, whom I'm preaching to you is the Christ. Verse 4 says, some of them were persuaded. Some of them were persuaded. And a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a large number of leading women. How are they persuaded? I think just the same way anybody else is by way of reasoning in the scriptures. So, but it doesn't say here they were regenerated. I don't know if it necessarily has to, though. It doesn't. I don't think it has to say every time that they were specifically regenerated in the moment. If we have other texts 
which would say that those who eventually are believers uh, must be regenerate first. And that could apply to uh, any other points we might have. Right. Well, this is what I was saying respectfully before from all these verses that I'm sharing with you so far, you have to read with this other pair of lens into all these verses to make it fit within your paradigm. All that I'm trying to say is, you know, we walked through Acts 2.38, we walked through Acts 8 and 10. These are people who are unregenerate and they didn't receive the spirit until after they did something. That's what I'm trying to point out. In the end of Acts 17, I know my time is going extremely fast. I had so many other questions I wanted to ask. Actually, I got, I asked, I'm going to have to skip my end of Acts 17. I have to ask you a direct question here. This is the heart of the, this is the heart of the conversation because there's so much more we both could say, right? Let me ask you this question because I have one minute, says Donnie. I have one minute. You do not shorten my time here. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. If this is talking be, be, before Christ, remember I mentioned John 7, where it says those who believed were to receive the Spirit, future tense, because Christ wasn't glorified. It says in John 14, the Holy Spirit was alongside them, but Jesus said, will be in you later. In you later means future tense. In John 20, 22, it says then that's when they received the Holy Spirit. That's what I was opening in my opening statements, right? So my question to you is, let's say before Jesus came, pre-Christ, and you're of the view that Old Testament saints could be made alive or regenerated, right? This kind of experience, the same kind of New Testament experience. If that's the case, if that's the case, that they could be regenerated in the same sense we are today, here's my question for you. Why then did Jesus need to come and die on the cross and rise again to give us the hope of eternal life if we could have already been saved and regenerated and had a new heart and a new heart, new mind, and been regenerated prior to that, then what was the point of Jesus coming if we could have already had all that the same way as we do today? What's the point? Uh, the point would be that the salvation they had, the atonement that they received, the impartation of righteousness that they received, and etc., uh, was not made effectual in their lives or in the in earth in general uh, until that moment took place, right? So in other words, the, the atonement sacrifice has to take place. Their faith is just is uh, just as valid as our faith because it will, just as ours is valid because it has. But right? just one clarification, weren't they regenerated as we would be today? Yeah, that regeneration is only taking place, though, because there is a sacrifice which is to take place. So if there was no sacrifice from place, their sins, no regeneration. Here's my, what is, this is what I'm trying to press on. They would have been saved from their sins. They would have been made alive. They would have been regenerated. Therefore, Jesus wouldn't have had them to come. We could have been easily saved and regenerated prior if the order salutis is correct what you've been saying so far. I, I don't think that would be, work out, though, because it, it, they only have atonement because there is an atonement sacrifice there it's not to come until later but nevertheless they have the imputed righteousness of christ that takes place as a result of that atonement because of what's going to happen if that wasn't going to happen then they would not have that imputed righteousness hmm. gentlemen that is the end of the discussion so a little bit over 50 minutes 
Uh, time really has fl uh, flown by. We're over two hours now. Comprehensive debate. Great job. Great work from the both of you, Kelly and CJ. You both also kept, uh, kept it very professional and cordial and gave me a very easy job in terms of moderating. So to the audience, we have 10 more minutes basically until we're going to shut down the Q&A. I've already got more than enough questions to keep us busy for 25 minutes. So with that, CJ, you get the first five minutes for your closing statement. And so whenever you're ready, uh, brother, go ahead. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. So I would like to bring together the threads of this conversation, if I may, and see if there are some uh, reasonable conclusions for us to reach. So the first thing that I want to point out is we had a lot of conversation over what is said in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And with respect to my brother, who is indeed my brother in Christ here, um, I would say that the only way to make heads or tails of that verse from a non-Calvinist perspective is the way that it sounded like heads or tails was made, which was to say it's just not really true that Rome, uh, what Paul says in Romans 3.10. What he says is none seeks after God. Of course, he says other things like none are righteous, none does good, no, not one. And the context here seems to be, in my opinion at least, very plainly, those who are not regenerate, those who are not saved, those who are not believers. But if the non-believer can indeed seek after God, I don't think that Paul's statement means anything at all. I would posit to you guys, the only thing that statement can mean, because we know that the believer seeks after God, the only thing that that statement can mean is that those who are in the flesh do not seek after God. If that is not true, Paul is just simply telling us a falsehood. And I think that that's an important thing for us to consider. Another thing I think that we ended up uh, reaching here in this conversation, although I wish we could have explored it further, which is partially my own fault, um, is in Romans 8, chapter 7. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, remember how Romans chapter 8 started. I said Romans chapter 7 is Romans chapter 8, verse 7. But nevertheless, remember how Romans chapter 8 started. It said there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul here couples those who walk according to the spirit with those who are in Christ Jesus and receive no condemnation. He will elsewhere talk about how Christians can walk both in the flesh and in the spirit. In other words, we can abide by the new man or abide by the old man. That's certainly true. But in this context in particular, he is using those who are in the spirit to refer to non-believers and those who are in the flesh, or excuse me, those who are in the spirit to refer to believers and those who are in the flesh to refer to non-believers. So then when he says those who are in the flesh cannot, literally uses the phrase cannot be submitted, uh, submitted to the law of God and that they cannot please God. How can we say that they can obey the most important commandment as given by Christ? Christ says that the first commandment, the commandment above all commandments, is to love the Lord your God. That is an act of faith. We're saying the thing which is most pleasing to God, a non-believer can do, while at the same time we're saying a non-believer cannot please God. It does not make any sense. I think another thing uh, explored here is this idea of the idol argument, and I would simply suggest to you guys in a solid understanding of the idol argument, regardless of whether or not you end up believing predestination, 
will make your uh, apologetic and your argumentation a lot better than I believe it currently is. The means and the ends are equally uh, predestined. In fact, the means are the mechanism by which the ends are predestined. If the means were not so, then the ends would not be so. And repeating arguments, which simply are reiterations of that idle argument, in my opinion, will not get us anywhere in this conversation. There's a reason the argument's 2,300 years old, and there's a reason the refutation of it is also 2,300 years old. People have thought of these things before, and at the time it wasn't convincing. And I, I suffice it to say, I don't believe that it's one minute now. Thank you very much. Um, I think there are plenty of other places we could have gone to. Ezekiel 36 talks about how the Lord will remove our stony heart and give to us a heart of flesh. Why do we need the removal of the stony heart and a heart of flesh to be given to us if indeed uh, we already have the capacity from that stony heart to seek God? Doesn't seem to work out, in my opinion. Uh, Jeremiah uh, 31 talks about him writing the law on our hearts. What is that process of writing the law on our hearts? It doesn't appear to be a thing that we all have already. And so on and so forth and so forth in ad infinitum ad nauseum. The point here seems to be, I think the scripture is very clear. Those who are saved are those who are predestinated, are those who were regenerated. Grace precedes the faith, and faith is the mechanism by which we receive the grace. Ten I hope that I did a convincing job here tonight. If anybody has questions, join me on the after show here, and both of you guys are welcome there as well. This has been a fantastic conversation. Shalom. Thank you, CJ. It really has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate the time you have given to us and also Kelly. Kelly, you've got, uh, you got five minutes for your concluding statement now, and so I will restart the timer. And whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Go ahead. I'll ask if you can put the slides back up and hello. The slot. Okay. The slides are this. Okay. No, not not yet. I'll, I'll put it up in one second. Just one second. Sure. Yes. All Take right. I'll hit my clock here. Um, where'd we go? All right. Go ahead and start my clock. And you can put me on just knee on the screen for a second. Well, first, thank you, Preston, for uh, not Preston, not Preston, Preston. I don't think <laughs> you, you crazy, crazy, crazy guy. Uh, thank you, CJ. Cox um, for this great, respectful discussion. I really appreciate it. This has been good. One quick comment of what was just brought up, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. Those are both pointing to the new covenant. And this is what Jesus was actually pointing to in John 3, talking to Nicodemus. He said, are you not a teacher of Israel? Do you not understand what I'm talking about, which the Son of Man was coming to usher in those kind of things? If you put my slides up, that'd be great. Thank you so much. And okay, uh, here we go. And there we go. Now, as I was mentioned earlier, this is really and, and, and this is the crux of a lot of what's going on here. In John seven, this is John who writes this. He talks about this, what Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What is he talking about? John answers, but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him. This is current currently were to receive. So there were people who were believing in Jesus, but they did not have the Spirit. Why? For the Spirit was not yet given. This is the New Covenant. This is the New Testament. This is what we read, as mentioned a moment ago, Jeremiah 31. This is what's going on. For Christ was not yet glorified. Jesus says, He abides with you. That word abides is the Greek word para, means alongside, and will be in you, Future tense. 
we then know after Jesus was resurrected, this is then when they received the Holy Spirit. As I was mentioning earlier, John 1, this is important. This is what we get the order of salutis here, meaning the order of salvation. Jesus being the true light, he did come. He came to the world. Many people, of course, rejected him, but not all of them. It says in verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave, that word gave here, the right, dunamis, to become, ginomai, to become something they were not. They became children of God. Why? Because they received Jesus and believed in his name. They were not born again or becoming children of God because of their blood or their nationality, not because of their own flesh or their own will that they could muster this up to make themselves born again. This is a work of God, but we are called, and here John gives it. This is not my opinion. It says here, to those who received him, he gave the right to become. They became something they originally were not. As I was mentioning earlier, we see these scriptures with the Samaritan woman. He lays it out and gives her this order here. Samaritans believe not only because of the woman, but because of Jesus. Jesus says here, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Thomas, Thomas was a doubter, but yet Jesus revealed himself to him, and then Thomas became a believer. John said he wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. There's an indication here that they could believe. Cornelius, as we recognize, was a God-fearing man, but yet he was not regenerated. He was not a believer in Jesus yet. Even with the discussion of Acts 2.38, the recognized discussion was they repent, they believe in Christ, they then receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, over here in Acts 17, we see again Jesus being proclaimed to the Jews and the Gentiles, and they were persuaded. They weren't born again and regenerated to believe. They were persuaded by what Paul was sharing. In Acts 17, Paul says here, God is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Should repent. This is not a choice. We are all called to repent. It says here they were given furnished proof, furnished proof by raising from the dead. Other people were sneering them, but it says, we'll hear you again. Some men joined and believed. As I wrap up here, what is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to what? Everyone who believes. When you believe, you become a child of God. Faith is not of ourselves. It's trusting in the Lord and him alone. And it's the good news of the gospel. And therefore, I conclude with this, as I would say with Paul, we beg you, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Thank you. Kelly Powers, thank you so much for that five-minute concluding statement. Gentlemen, that wraps up the opening statements, rebuttals, discussion, and concluding statements. So again, Kelly and CJ, great work. That really was a fantastic debate and comprehensive as a debate on this uh, topic should be. So with that, we do have audience questions and we've got a lot of fantastic questions. Yep. Take your time. If you gentlemen, I know we've been going for two and a half hours. If you wanted a couple minute break to go to the, the restroom or something, fill up your water. Thank you. We can do that. Totally up to you. 
gentlemen. Well, regardless, I'll go over a couple announcements. So if you wanted to do that, go ahead. And then we'll do the Q&A in just a minute here. So tomorrow we are back. We're going to have a lot of people have been looking forward to this debate. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited for this. So T-Rock and Grayson, both frequent debaters, experienced debaters in the creation versus evolution world. And so T-Rock taking the Young Earth creation position. He and Grayson, they'll be debating tomorrow at nine. Is there evidence for a young earth? And so make sure you're here for that one. Uh, tonight, of course, we've had the great total depravity debate. And we had just two nights ago, we had a continuation in the Evolution Debate Challenge series with Kent Hovind and Luca Medugno. As a matter of fact, that was last night. So that was a ton of fun. And earlier in the day today, we uh, I premiered a discussion, informal discussion with a couple evolutionists, Mark Reed and Grayson. So please check that out. We discussed endogenous retroviruses. Sunday, we're going to take off and then we will be back here on Monday. And so this one, another debate that I'm looking forward to, two experienced debaters, Mark Reed and Paul Price. The important question, is there evidence for the existence of God? And so this is going to be a formal debate. It is definitely going to be a debate that you do not want to miss. Then the very next day, this one's going to be an earlier debate. And so this is going to be uh, Dr. Dino and Christian Dean. This one's going to be at four in the afternoon. So Christian, I believe it's he's in Denmark. And so he's on a totally different uh, time zone. So again, four o'clock earlier debate. Is there good evidence for evolution? And then that same week, we've got uh, the warnings of Hebrews debate. Looking forward to this one. I think this will be the first time in over 260 debates that we've hosted where we're specifically going to debate uh, controversial passages in the book of Hebrews, such as Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 6. It looks like Kelly Powers is back. CJ, if you're back as well, let me know, brother. And we are going to, there There we go. Okay, gentlemen. I had to, had to take care of my cats. My cats did really good up until the end. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. You guys did good. The cats did good two and a half hours later. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. We've got some audience questions. We've got a good mix of questions for the both of you and a good mix in the chat of people holding to Kelly's position, people holding to CJ's position. So let's get now, into the fun. Whatever the decisions are, remember it was predestined. It was this debate was predestined to happen, and it, it was predestined to be a debate to remember. So, gentlemen, good job. I'm starting the timer right now, and we'll get through as many questions as we can. And so here we go. We'll start right at the beginning. This one comes in from Nakia. Thank you so much for your question. Question for both. Titus 3.5 says, we are saved not by works, but verse 8 says, those who believe God will keep their mind on maintaining good works. How else can this be interpreted other than faith prior to regeneration? And so it's kind of more directed at you, though, CJ. So why don't we uh, why don't we start with you uh, with the question? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
I don't think that this would indicate faith prior to regeneration at all, personally, of course, right? Otherwise, wouldn't be here. Um, but I, I do think that there is, if we compare this to a uh, verse which is saying near the same thing, which is Ephesians two, chapter eight through, or excuse me, Ephesians two, verse eight through ten. I think we can get a solid idea of what is being communicated here. And I don't think that it actually would um, force us into one position or the other, although I do think it, it is better accounted for on the Reformed position. Nevertheless, I don't think it necessarily forces that. And that is to say, we are saved by grace, we are saved through faith, and we are saved unto good works, which the Lord has predestined for us to walk in. Uh, in other words, those who are saved have a change within them that takes place. Uh, this goes back to ideas of like lordship salvation, right? Um, th there's a change that takes place within them that causes them to seek after righteousness, to seek after obedience, to seek after God's law, and to turn away from things like sin uh, and, and all the other different things that that would entail. So long story short, we're not saved by works, but the Lord does change us in such a way that we will become better people. And I think everybody on this panel has probably experienced that because let's be honest, it's pretty hard not to. What did C.S. Lewis famously say? Um, no man knows how bad he is until he tries very hard to be good. Well, no man tries very hard to be good, I would argue, in reverse of that until he realizes how bad he is. And the Lord has, I think, revealed to all of his sons just how bad we are, thus leading us to repent, and has also led us, as a result, to be better than that. hope that made sense. CJ, I appreciate it. Kelly, the floor is yours. You know, I, I kind of would agree, actually, with CJ in this. I don't think um, verse 8 would actually be indicating faith before regeneration either, because I'm reading it, because it says... Um, Verse 8 said, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. It goes on talking about avoiding such things and rejecting a heretic and factious man, David Preston, I mean, and other people like that. And um, But this is not teaching um, faith for regeneration here. I think this is just talking about those who believe God, those who are believing are to be careful to engage good deeds. We're to be, we're, we're to consider our steps. We're to walk in a, a worthy manner, if you will. And so I don't, I don't see how this verse, I would never use this verse to kind of teach that thing. I wouldn't see that completely at all here. It is interesting though, when you do read verse five, it says he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So it's nothing we do of ourselves, but according to his mercy, which is, of course, what I would completely agree as well. By the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the spirit, he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, being justified by his grace. We were able to be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there, on the one hand, I would agree a little bit with CJ also, too, when he was pointing to Ephesians 2 a little while ago. Yeah. It is for by grace we've been saved, but it's through faith. So this is, again, the means by which we put our faith in God. We're saved by grace, but it's our faith in Jesus Christ. And again, I would agree with him here, too, that we are uh, created in Christ to do good works, but God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. Again, I have no objections to that. But it's interesting when you read the gospel in uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, here it says, in him also, after listening, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel, 
having believed, you were sealed. So there's this process. So you read Ephesians 2 with Ephesians 1. It's all together. And so we can't just make certain things say what we want it to say. But most of what CJ just said, though, surprisingly, I would actually agree with a lot of what he just said. Okay, Kelly, thank you very much for your response. It was a question for both, and so you both got a response. Therefore, let's move on to the next one. Question comes in from AU. Question for CJ, it looks like. So if total depravity is true and irresistible grace is true, why doesn't God just give irresistible grace to everyone so everyone could be saved? CJ, go ahead. There's actually two answers to this. I'll try to be very quick with both of them. The first one, the very blunt and honest and perhaps a little calloused version, but which nevertheless is true, is Proverbs 16.4. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That is to say, the day of doom, the day of destruction, uh, judgment day, in other words. Uh, I didn't say it, he said it. So you got to take it up with him, okay? He said that he has made everything for his glory. That includes the wicked for the day of destruction. Um, and there's, I think, a very plain reason we could see for this. The, the reason for creation, there's many, uh, I'm sure. But one reason we can ultimately say is the reason for creation is that God is manifesting his attributes in real time. He is a creator, So he creates in real time. He's a redeemer. So he redeems in real time. He is a judge. So he judges in real time and so on and so forth. If there was nothing to judge, he would never manifest that part of his nature, which is a judge. If there was nothing to redeem, he would never manifest that part of his nature, which is to redeem. So on and so forth with all the different qualities which God uh, possesses. Now, the question immediately comes, what about like Ezekiel 33, 11? God is not willing that any should perish, right? And that is true. These texts, I don't think, contradict each other. So how can they both be true? Well, I think that the Bible is an inherently compatibilistic book. What is compatibilism? Long story short, divine determinism and free will are compatible. They're both 100% true. And I think the Bible is an inherently compatibilistic book. How exactly does that work? I don't know if we'll ever figure out exactly how it works any more than we'll ever figure out exactly how Jesus could be both man and both God, 100% so without admixture. But nevertheless, I think the Bible does clearly teach that it's true. So it is true that men freely uh, reject the gospel, and it is also true that they were predestined not to be part of the elect. Um, If anybody has further questions on that, I think that I have plenty of time in my after show, but I don't want to take too much time here. CJ, thank you very much. Kelly, floor is yours for your response. Yeah, well, um, you know, obviously in this debate, um, we're sharing where we're coming from, from our perspectives and looking at what the scriptures teach, right? And I've already shared John 1, where John 1, 9 says that Jesus is the true light, which comes into the world and enlightens almost everyone or only a few people. Sarcasm is implied. It says he comes and enlightens everyone. Um, Romans 1 says that we are all, God's made himself evident to all. And we suppress the truth and righteousness, and we choose to worship creation rather than the creator, right? So this is the area where this is a big difference between, say, some of myself and, say, the Reformed perspective, where the gospel is available for 
the whosoever. That's why John 3.16 is so good. And that's why I read John 3.14 and 15 prior to that to give this context to which Jesus is teaching Nicodemus to point back to the story of numbers, that God's heart is for people to be saved. Even what CJ just said, pointing back to Ezekiel. Um, remember in Second uh, Peter 3, 9, one scripture among others, which we've already went through the book of Acts, calling everybody to return and repent. Peter says, God's will is that none that, that to perish, but to repent. And so we that that's God's heart. And yet, if that's not true, then there's a problem right there, right? And as I talked about earlier, what's interesting too is in 1 John 2, 2, this is what John writes. And remember, majority of the Acts up to Acts chapters 1 through 12, we see Peter and John being together in a lot of their ministry. After that, after that, we don't see them being really mentioned because then Paul is kind of the focus from there. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, well, actually verse 1, he says, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. So John says for our sins, but not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. So the good news of the gospel is not just to be for certain people only. Hebrews 2.9 says that Christ died, says that he tasted death for everyone. Hebrews 2.9, I don't make that up, right? So this is the gospel that we're talking about. And one last thing that I mentioned earlier a couple times in my, my presentation and the, the cross-examination with CJ, again, this is the going through Paul explaining, giving evidence that Christ died, rose again, persuading people, helping people come to trust in Jesus. Well, this is what Scripture says in verse 30. One more time to read it. God is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. If this is only available for a small select few and majority of mankind not, then there's just so many problems. And so I see that this would be going against total depravity and irresistible grace. That's where I, as I'm looking at the scriptures, I'm trying to exegete them in context with you sharing. Well, thank you. Kelly, appreciate the response. CJ, this question was for you specifically, so you can have the last word. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I would just like to point out, I do, and so do many other Calvinists, believe that there is a real truth, not a faux truth, not a fake truth, not an evanescent truth, to, to uh, text like Ezekiel 33, 11, and so on. But there is equally uh, there is e equally a lot of very real truth in other statements throughout scripture, scripture, excuse me, which seem to suggest precisely what it is that we, the Calvinists, are talking about. Again, Proverbs 16, 4, he said, He has made the wicked for the day of destruction. Romans 9 repeats the same, saying, uh, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one honor, uh, one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? So many times we have this notion like, Oh, I got to get God off the hook for saying these things, but He said them. Okay, you don't have to get God off the hook for anything that he said. He said it for a reason. He meant it. Okay, And he said that he makes vessels unto dishonor. He said that there are some like Judas who were destined to, pre, uh, to perdition uh, from the beginning. He said that he's made the wicked for the day of destruction. You don't get to say he didn't say it. 
you don't get to take God off the hook for something he says he wants to be on the hook for. Okay. Now, is there further explanation for that? Absolutely. But when people want to say things like, oh, well, that's just, you're just uh, reading in some like cool capriciousness of God. Absolutely not. But you got to, I'm taking Ezekiel 33, 11 to mean something. You got to take Proverbs 16, 4 to mean something as well. Right. Um, and I'll just kind of leave it there. Thank you very much for the final word there, CJ. Um, I guess since Kelly's best friend in the YouTube world, David Preston, had several <laughs> honorable mentions, we'll get one of his uh, questions in here. And we'll consider this the epic round two, the much anticipated round two between Powers and Preston. Oh, <laughs> so only it's predestined to happen. I think so. And he's coming at you, I, I Kelly. Would, I would be happy if it was, to be honest, but I don't think he will debate me. But that's just me. That's me. But much love to my David friend here. Much love. Much love. Well, your, your David friend's coming at you with a left hook, Kelly. He's yeah. asking. I love all my heretic friends out there. So there we go. All right. So the question says, how could the Old Testament... Oh, sorry. Are you the moderator now? You're going to read the question? Oh. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> <laughs> Kelly's taking over, guys. Kelly's taking... If you want to do the honor, go ahead and read, read your own question. <laughs> well, you can read it, and then I'm going to read it, because I also read it when I read it. That's true. That's true. Okay. I'll, I'll read it uh, verbally. You the moderator. Audibly, I'm sorry to step and then on you read belly. it in your mind. <laughs> I appreciate it, Kelly. It's been fun, serious, sophisticated, intelligent, scholarly, the all the above. This the debate. So question for Kelly is coming at you with the left hook. And he is asking, how could OT saints have been given eternal life if they were not regenerated by the Holy Ghost? And he cites John 7 and Titus 3. <laughs> Sorry. I just keep thinking that Preston really needs to get a late night stand-up show because he keeps getting funnier and funnier, that last comment over there. That's, oh, I'm so nervous. Anyway, I you know, it's great. It's a beautiful thing. Humor is a good thing, guys. All right. So now I'm going to read. How could the Old Testament saints have been given eternal life if they weren't regenerated by the Holy Ghost? John 7, 38, 38. Well, that's the thing. I mean, SoCal, why don't you actually go read what it says, my friend? I mean, I read it earlier. Let's read it again. John chapter 7 states the following. I mean, this is John the Apostle. This is not Kelly Powers. John wrote, says, Now in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood out, stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said. So he who believes, present tense, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him, future tense, were to receive. The spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the distinction is in the Old Testament, people were always Saved by faith. I know you can't grasp that. You think they were saved by faith and works. That's heresy. It was not. Habakkuk 2.4, which is backed up by Paul in uh, Romans 1.17. If he's the same guy who wrote Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse the last of the chapter, verse 38 and 39. Faith to faith, we are to live by. The whole book of Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the hall of faith, of fame of the Old Testament saints. They trusted in the Lord. So the distinction would be this. As talked about with Cedar earlier, yeah, Abraham was declared righteous 
it was imputed to him, but he wasn't necessarily changed of the within a regeneration. He was declared righteous, but the transformation of this regeneration of the work is to take place from the new covenant, which Ezekiel 36 talks about and Jeremiah 31 pointed to as well. These are both new Testament affirmations of what the prophecies of the Messiah would become. So they were always saved by faith, but they were not born again. They were not quickened. They were not made alive. This is something that took place later. But yes, the Holy Spirit did work in people's lives. Yes, at times, even the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came upon people. Even at times, the Holy Spirit moved within them. But they did not have that transformation, that new birth, if you will, this new thing we call the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Appreciate it there, uh, Kelly Powers. I think you may have converted David Preston with, with that response. So his left hook has been countered. And CJ, we're going to hand it over to you now, and you have uh, the opportunity for your response. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I agree with a lot of what Kelly said, but not all of it. And um, the main disagreement would be in the crux of the question, though. I do believe that the... Uh, Old Testament saints were regenerate uh, before the the coming of Jesus Christ. And I think there's a couple things that would demonstrate that. First, I, I do want to say just a couple brief definitions of regeneration. Now, granted, these can go, uh, you know, you can't have different definitions depending on the denomination or tradition or beliefs or what have you. But so, for example, John Calvin said, uh, all who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ are at the same time regenerated by the Spirit, and we have an earnest of this regeneration, in, and that we have an uh, earnest of this regeneration in baptism. And he also described the secret operation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there is um, the principles of faith from the Emmanuel Associations of Churches, which says regeneration is the impartation of divine life, which is manifested in the radical change in the moral, moral character of man from the love and life of sin to the love of God and the life of righteousness, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, obviously, we also have Titus 3, 5, which will be the last little portion I read here, uh, which doesn't describe exactly what it is, but definitely gives us a solid idea when it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. So it seems like the washing the thing that makes us righteous is this regeneration. Um, Abraham has imputed righteousness. The scripture is abundantly clear on that. And actually both me and Kelly would agree on that. But it seems to me like the imputed righteousness of Christ is what regeneration is. It is in other words, that's why you're saved, right? Uh, and so because we can have assurance that Abraham was saved, because we can have assurance that he had the imputed righteousness of Christ back then in Genesis 15. I think we can say while there may be some different uh, some differences, while there certainly was some real accomplishment in what Jesus said at the cross, one of the differences is not that regeneration became a thing after 33 AD or, or whenever Jesus was crucified. I think 33 AD is most accurate. But nevertheless, I think that that imputed righteousness there indicates Abraham was indeed um uh, regenerate, right? Um, and I'll go ahead and yield there. CJ, appreciate it, brother. Uh, question was for Kelly, though. So, Kelly, you get the last word whenever you're ready. Go ahead. 
All right, just checking there. Yeah, so the question was, how could the Old Testament say have a given eternal life if they weren't regenerate? Well, the, the, the question here again is, they were given eternal life. They were given the righteousness of God because they believed. So just like Abraham believed, many of the Old Testament saints would have believed, and the eternal life that they would have had would have been um, essentially that they would have been followers of God. And then a place what we've I've already talked about before that is a, a view that is that is respected by many people or scholars that they were in a place of waiting called Abraham's bosom. They didn't go directly to heaven number one because they couldn't have been regenerated. As I mentioned earlier, because of John seven, because of what Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will be in you. Future tense. He then gives them the Holy Spirit in John twenty. We then see example of repent and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We see these examples over and over. You believe, you then receive. It's as simple as that. So the issue of eternal life, they would have had it, but it's a different kind of scenario in the sense of a New Testament understanding. As mentioned earlier, kind of giving just a brief response to CJ here. Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, both are pointing to the new covenant. If people could have been regenerated and been what we would have the same sense that we understand in the New Testament, then this is the question that I asked earlier when I say respectfully to people like CJ, then it makes a mockery. You don't mean to be, but it makes a mockery what Christ came to do. Because if we could have been regenerated in the Old Testament, then there's no point for Jesus coming and dying on the cross to save us because we would have been regenerated for just believing in Yahweh before. So this is why the work, when Jesus said, I must go away, John 16, for if I do not go away, the Holy Spirit cannot come to you. I mean, it, these are what Jesus taught. He says, I must go so the Holy Spirit can come. This is the consistent teaching, what we see from the New Testament. All right, I appreciate it. Uh, SoCal Preston, thanks so much for the question. And Kelly and CJ, thank you for the responses. And so I will say next month, one could say it is the month of dispensationalism debate. So David Preston, he will be back here next month to debate Pastor Anthony Aquino on the topic of dispensational salvation. And we've also got several more on that topic. And maybe one day we'll get the round two between Kelly Powers and David Preston, as it looks like many people do want to uh, want to see it. So <laughs> uh, truth defenders appreciate the question, brother. He's got a question for both. And so he is asking when you pray for a person, how do you pray? God, leave them alone until they turn to you on their own. Or do you pray that God reaches them by any means? Uh, I guess Kelly started with the last one. And so if you wanted to CJ, you could start with, with this one, but it's up to you gentlemen. Oh, uh, well, my answer will be very short. Um, I pray, I similarly to what Truth is saying here, you know, bring them to repentance, uh, bring them the gift of repentance, uh, make them a daughter or son, things of that nature, right? Uh, but I also do always end with, um, you know, your will be done, or if it be your will, uh, because I I do freely recognize that whatever it is that is going to take place after this prayer, it must be within the confines of the will of God. Um, 
And so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of simple as that. Lord, please bring this person to repentance and to see you as the savior. Uh, please do whatever it is that is necessary to bring them to salvation. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Thank you, CJ. Uh, Kelly, floor is yours. Go ahead. You're unmuted. Well, it's an interesting question. And I think it's actually an illogical question, or at least worded wrongly. And even though TD is my friend, it's it's kind of already a wrong premise from the start. It says, when you pray for a person, how do you pray? God, leave them alone until they turn to you on their own. Now, I would assume TD knows that no Arminian, or at least a person who would not be classified as a Calvinist, because I'm not even really a full Arminian myself. I'm kind of a mixture. I call myself an Arvinist for the sake of it out there. I have a little bit of leaning on both sides, right? So so there you go. You like that? I made up my own words. Right. Some people like to say uh, Cal, uh, Calminian. I call myself an Arvinist. There you go. I made it up. <laughs> so um, nobody would ever say they come to it on their own. As I mentioned earlier, God through creation, Romans 1, it says that Paul wrote, God has made himself evident to all of us. For we are without excuse. Creation points to his divinity, right? Psalm 19 says the skies declare, the heavens declare his glory. Jesus said the Holy Spirit, he would convict us of sin, judgment, and righteousness. He does it to the world, right? We know that the gospel speaks to people. It's the power of God for salvation, we know Old and New Testament angels are at times involved, even in our, our dreams at times. So nobody would ever say it's of our own. Never. It's always God who first speaks to us, first draws out to us and gives us whatever it may be. He did it with a Samaritan woman, did it with Nicodemus. He did it with a rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to him and says, what must I do? Jesus gives him the good. So when I pray, when I pray, I pray, Lord, may your will be done as what was just shared a little while ago. True. I say, Lord, let them hear the gospel. Reveal yourself to them. May they see creation points to you. But if it's an, if it's an atheist, if it's a Mormon, I pray, Lord, expose Mormonism. Let they see that this stuff is false and they need to come to you, the Jesus of the Bible, to trust in the gospel of the Bible. If it's a Jehovah's Witness, I say, please, Lord, expose and let them see that the organization is false and they need to trust in Christ. If it's a one, this guy, they need to see that their modalist perspective is heretical. I can go down the line. So I'm praying specifically for people for what they're caught up in, for God to reveal themselves to them. And at that, I pray they would respond. That's how I would respond to that. Gentlemen, appreciate it. Uh, we are almost at the 30 minute mark for the Q and a, so let's get one uh, last question here. We can get in one that has to do an exegetical question, I guess. It's another question for the both of you. This one comes in from Centurion. And so thanks for the question. And he's asking for the guests, can you please exegete John 644 in regards to tonight's debate? Uh, CJ started with the last one. Kelly, why don't we start with you and go ahead. Wow. Way to end with an easy one, huh? 
yeah. This and we question both have like ten minutes to give a response here. Right. This is about to spark another uh, three-hour debate. So get uh, get ready, gentlemen. We're going to be here all night. Episode two. Maybe Episode why don't we have a maybe we could have a debate number two on this one later because I think this is both of us um, would give a lot of information on this and I don't think it'd be fair because this is a big big verse for us to both discuss. That's Around, my view. It, it's up to you. You guys could just give rather than an all out exposition to be fair to the questioner. Why don't you both just give an under two minute explanation on how you see John six forty four, and come on, you guys can do. You're both teachers. Well, under all right. let's say under two minutes each. All right, Lord, all out give me the predestined <laughs> ability to give an answer within a couple minutes here. Okay, here we go. I've got confidence in you. Go ahead, well, Kelly. We'll start with verse you. 44 doesn't start there. It starts back in verse 26. He's he's talking to these people. They saw Jesus do these signs and wonders. Jesus says, Because you ate of the loaves, you were filled. Do he says, Do not, he says to unregenerate people, do not work for the food which perishes but work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, which is that word didomai, didome, which is the same word that we get for grant as well. For on him the Father God even set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do? Here's the question, what shall we do? And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe, right, whom he sent. What's interesting is you get to verse 32 and 33, Jesus says to them, it's not Moses who's giving his bread out of heaven, it's my father who gives you. So Jesus is speaking to these people. I've been given you this bread. I'm this bread, figuratively speaking, that's come out of him. My father's given this bread to you. I'm this bread, verse 35. For the bread of God is that which comes down of heaven and gives life to the world, right? So as we see this, it's, it's, it's kind of getting to this. We see, he says, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will. He says, this is the will of my father, verse 40, everyone to behold and believe as eternal life. We then see them grumbling, verse 41, because he said, I'm the bread that came out of heaven. They're saying, is this not Jesus? Is he not the son of Joseph? We know who his mother is as well. How can he say, I've come down from heaven? He has answered and said to them, do not grumble for yourself. No one can come to me unless it's the father who sent me draws him. Now there's that word draw, helkel, right? Or helkio. And I will raise him up on the last day, right? So here's an interesting, so no one can come to me unless the father draws him. Well, Jesus already says that he was the true bread that came out of heaven and was given by the father to them. He was given for them. So this is a, a, a very declarative statement. So he came, was given from the father to them. They're grumbling. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Well, how does the father draw, right? Is it this dragging or is it more of an enticing, uh, persuasive, appealing, as you will. And I believe there's a lot of evidence to go with that. I can't give the Old Testament verses to talk about, but there's at least three or four verses in the Old Testament that talks about how God draws us, and it's not by dragging, it's by enticing or leading us. Verse 45 says, It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So as I mentioned earlier in the response, no one comes to Christ on their own. No one. Of course, it's God who reveals things to us. 
God speaks to us through creation. He draws us through creation. He can speak to us through the gospel, through the evidence, as Paul did in Acts 17, the evidence of the resurrection and crucifixion of Christ, right? Persuading people. There's other ways as well, but no one just all, all just believes just because. So this drawing is the Father sent the Son. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I draw all men to myself, right? Remember that. That's a little bit later. In John 1, it says that he's the true light which comes in the world that enlightens everyone. So I will say with this, this verse by itself, there's a lot of data, which I know CJ would agree with, but this verse by itself does not prove or disprove what I'm coming from. And I don't believe it would prove or disprove where CJ is coming from. There's a lot of context going here, but no one, no one comes to Christ of their own. The father sent the son, revealed himself to the world, and there, therefore, those who respond to what Christ has been revealed to them, those are the ones that I believe believe. Very good, Kelly. You did it. I appreciate it. I'm impressed. CJ, now it's your turn. Go ahead, John 644. Absolutely. Thank you. So uh, it says, of course, wait, am I? Yeah, I am. Okay. It says, of course, um, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it seems to be, in my opinion, plainly saying that no man is able to come to Christ unless he is drawn of the Father. In other words, it seems to indicate a level of predestination. But let's explore a little bit of the context and see if that holds true. Notice he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Commonly, you'll see somebody say, well, later on it says, uh, am I, you know, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will uh, draw all men to himself. Therefore, this was true at this time, but it's not true any longer. Well, that doesn't work because Jesus says quite plainly here that those who the Father draws are the ones who he will raise up on the last day, right? So those who are going to be ultimately saved are the ones who cannot come to Christ except for the Father, except uh, the Father draw them, right? So that's certainly an important element of this that we should consider. Continuing forward in verse 46, he says, Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He, uh, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. Why do I read this? To continue on with this idea that uh, he is not speaking simply about things which are going on on this time. at this time. He is talking about those who will ultimately be saved unto salvation, right? And notice this also. Let me see if I can find exactly where uh, this next portion here is. Because there's another thing here that I think is incredibly important. It's in the exact same chapter. Let me see. Keyword search. Well, no, it looks like it's going to be too much for me to find that it's like it's one of the longest chapters in the bible so nevertheless i believe this is the same uh chapter where he is talking about um my sheep hear my voice and another they will not listen to but that might be another passage and i'm just getting across that is john 10 thank you nevertheless the point there is just to say this jives i think very well with other verses which are spoken about where it says those who are 
his sheep will not follow another. And there are those who are tares and or goats. This is not in John, but Matthew, who are amongst the believers, but who nevertheless are not actually the believers, right? So it all fits together in a nice little bow here, if we understand this to say what I think it is saying, which is you cannot believe in Christ unless you are drawn to believe in Christ. In other words, you cannot believe in Christ. You cannot accept the gospel. You cannot do that which is pleasing to him unless he regenerates you, right? At least that's what I would uh, suggest. Although, of course, I recognize that other people may not believe that, and I uh, perhaps am not giving the best explanation given the small amount of time. It is a flaw on my part if that is the case, not on the part of the doctrine. Nevertheless, I'll end it there. Um, don't want to take too much time there. Can I throw out a joke? Because you know how bad, I, how good I am with good jokes, right? Of course, of TJ, course. Let's wrap it up with a joke. Go ahead. TJ, don't be disappointed. What happened has happened because God caused it to happen, so be happy with it. <laughs> hey, that's true, though. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there we go. So CJ and Kelly will have to do a round two. Lately, we've been getting a lot of uh, exegetical debates where we pick one really controversial passage and we hash it out for three hours. So John 644 could be a passage to debate in the future. With that, uh, we got some bonus uh, minutes as well in the audience Q&A. As always to the audience, you guys are great. I appreciate how engaged you are in these important debates. Always very lively and always just a ton of fantastic questions. So we are going to wrap it up there, though. Kelly, CJ, excellent endurance. We're over three hours. A comprehensive debate on this topic. CJ, my good man, I know you have a an after show after this as well. Mm -hmm. So it looks like the debate is going to continue uh, into the night, an all-nighter possibly. So let's get some final words, final thoughts, though, from our guests for tonight. I appreciate the uh, very intellectual in-house debate on total depravity. CJ, let's start with you again. Thanks so much for being here and some final words, final thoughts. Absolutely. I already gave my uh, conclusion, so I won't do anything of that nature, but I will say I appreciated this tremendously. Uh, this is an in-house debate. Uh, and I believe that brother Kelly does incredibly great work for the gospel. Uh, I would recommend his channel, which is Berean apologetics. On everything that's not Calvinism, I don't think we've ever disagreed. <laughs> to um, but nevertheless, it, I do mean it though, as far as the recommendation, right? Um, I think that he is a, a great brother in the Lord. You know, we look today back on some still around, like Kent Hovind and James White, and etc., and many who are not, like Charles Spurgeon, and we talk about Schofield. People talk about C.S. Lewis, depending on where you're at and who you like, right? Well, the new generation, I think, is propping up, and uh, Brother Kelly is one of those. So I would just like to say I certainly recommend his channel. I appreciated this debate. Uh, also, you're welcome on the after show. And if any of you guys want to uh, have a round two, let's absolutely do it. All right. I appreciate it there, CJ. Again, to the audience, if you like what you've heard from Kelly and CJ, who both put out excellent content on their channels, including open mic discussions and hangouts. So I do recommend both of your channels. Please do uh, check those out. Our sister Michelle here says, great debate brothers. And I agree. So Kelly Powers, again, thanks for being here. My good man, you're going to be here again in April debating Caleb Percher on, uh, well, we haven't specifically uh, decided on the title, but something related to the Trinity and oneness. So Kelly, final words, final thoughts, brother? 
Oh man, it was great. CJ, you know, much respect to you. You know, um, I, I, we haven't really had a whole lot of conversations before, but I have perused your channel at times and, you know, um, in-house debate, but much respect to you. I enjoyed this discussion. You know, I, I believe you treated me with much respect and I sure hope I did the same to you. And uh, we, we had a really good discussion coming from a couple of different perspectives. And I think many people even out there, you know, like, you know, one of the things that I would always say is, you know, um, try, and this is not directed to you either. It's just anybody out there. Listen, try not to be so focused on what you think you've been taught or where you're at with your denomination or whatever. Always be open as the Bereans, the Bible says, right? Be always eager to hear both sides always, and then go to the scriptures yourself. Don't assume what CJ says is right. Don't assume what I'm saying is right. You need to be responsible for yourselves because that's what God predestined for you to be. Amen and amen. There's my last joke for the night. There you go. Um, I mean that with all silliness. I'm not in any way mocking Calvin. Please don't take that the wrong way, guys. You got to have some fun. I know CJ takes it the right way, but this was a great discussion. CJ, I would welcome talking with you again on something else down the road again. So it's been great. Well, you both have a great sense of humor. You go, you guys both made for an easy debate to moderate. And it's why we host so many debates on so many different topics here is because I think it's important, as you put it, Kelly, to get out of our theological echo chambers and engage different positions. And I think it, it really helps op open up minds to, to the truth. It helps One challenge. You're right. So I don't wait like, before you boom, right? Yeah. I just also want to say, CJ, thank you for your very nice words and encouragement about me and my channel and my ministry. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Absolutely. CJ, Kelly, you're both putting out great content. I appreciate your time that you give me and the audience here at Standing for Truth, uh, the time you give us for these debates. So with that, anybody who's interested, go head on over to the synagogue for the epic after show to this uh, debate on total depravity. As for Standing for Truth, we will be back here tomorrow night, the great age of the earth de uh, debate. So with that, Standing for Truth is out. God bless. You.